In today's episode of Backpacker Radio, presented by The Trek, we are joined by Matt Berger, known on trail as Sheriff Woody. If you like plants, who boy, are you in luck because Sheriff Woody is an experienced thru-hiker and a trained botanist who's packed the gills with fun flora facts. We learned about some of the standout plant species along each of the Triple Crown trails, how to know if a berry is edible or deadly, some of the rarest flowers along the Triple Crown trails, interesting facts about cacti, pine cones, and trees along these trails, and much, 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 much more. Even if you aren't a plant person, we are guaranteeing 100% satisfaction with this interview for your money back. We wrap the show with our favorite grocery store impulse buys. A shout out to Kelly Floro, who recently completed the Pyrenean Hout Route, which I'm sure I didn't say correctly. A triple crown of midlife crisis hobbies, our preferred noise to mask a public dump, and much more. But first, I am thrilled to introduce our next sponsor, which is a brand that has been a part of my pack and through hikes dating back to 2017. Vargo creates lightweight titanium backpacking gear that is simple, innovative, and functional. The VargoBot 700 was with me every step of the way during my thru-hike of the PCT and every backpacking trip since. The VargoBot is extremely lightweight, weighing less than 5 ounces, and transfers heat quickly and evenly, making it the perfect pot for your cookware setup. But this just scratches the surface for why the bot kicks so much at butt. Because the bot features a screw top lid, it's the ideal option for the cold soakers of this world. Dump your dehydrated meal and the appropriate amount of water into the bot, screw the lid closed, insert time, and voila, dinner is ready. Also, I can't count all the times I've benefited from having an additional 700 mLs of emergency water storage when encountering an unexpected dry spell. In other words, this piece is incredibly versatile and may very well be the last pot you ever buy. The bot comes in a variety of sizes, including the brand new Bot XL, which is designed to perfectly fit a full-size canister inside with extra room for a stove. I'm also a user and fan of Vargo's utensils, titanium long handle spoon for the win, and their titanium stakes. You simply can't beat titanium's combination of strength and being lightweight, and no one does it better than Vargo. Discount time, Backpacker Radio listeners, head to VargoOutdoors.com and use coupon code BACKPACKERRADIO at checkout to score a 20% discount. Again, the code is BACKPACKERRADIO, all one word, at VargoOutdoors.com. This is a limited time deal, so do not wait. Smart backpackers hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. That's why a satellite communicator is a must-have for any hiker headed into the backcountry. Enter today's sponsor, Zolio. What makes Zolio stand out from the other satellite communicators on the market? If you've listened to our previous interview with Andrew Skirka, you're already familiar with why he loves Zolio. And after testing it out for myself, it's hard to disagree. Simply put, Zolio offers the most seamless messaging experience of any device in its category. On trail throughout the day, it's common for cell service to appear, then disappear, then reappear, rinse and repeat. Instead of getting one message from the device's number, then the phone number, and back again, creating a confusing asynchronous chain of communication with the Zolio, which offers a dedicated phone number, all of the communication happens in one place in the Zolio app. Whether you're on Wi-Fi, connected to a cell tower, or relying on satellite communication in the middle of nowhere, all of your texts live in one thread, ensuring coherent communication and no missed messages. 
Add to that, users can send messages of 900 plus characters, more than five times the messaging capacity in comparison to the standard 160 character message of Zolio's competitors. Not only does this make for a better messaging experience, but it means a better value for your dollar, since a 900 character text sent via satellite would be charged as one message instead of five. Speaking of value, the Zolio is half the cost compared to other popular satellite communicators with affordable plans offering more included messages and unlimited free check-in and SOS messages. Put simply, Zolio offers the best user experience at a better value. What's not to love? And Backpacker Radio listeners are in luck because you can save even more money by using code Backpacker Radio at checkout. You will get a free activation of your Zolio device. Again, that's code Backpacker Radio at checkout when activating your device to waive this charge. You can buy your Zolio device at any major online retailer, including REI, Amazon, Bass Pro Shops, Cabela's, and more. The code is for when you activate your device after receiving it. This deal is only good for a limited time, so do not wait. Backpacker Radio presented by The Trek. Today is November 20th, National Payback Your Parents Day. Chance, have you paid back your parents? No. Yeah, same. I am your co-host, Zach Badger Davis. Sitting to my right is... Hi, I'm Juliana Chauncey, a.k.a. Chance. Reminders before we get to today's awesome interview. If you're listening to this before December 1st, definitely mark your calendar for that date as we are hosting our annual holiday hiker meetup extravaganza, Palooza, Extreme, Extraordinaire, Etc. Uh, this is our big annual holiday hiker meetup. We're going to have giveaway items. It's going to be a bigger crowd than normal. Um, what are other reasons why people would want to go? Mara will be there. Mara's going to be there. Should we say some of the things that we already know we're giving away? Do we know? We know a couple. Uh, no, we'll have darn tough socks. Yeah. We're, Chicken Tramper is going to send some stuff. That's right. Catabatic's giving away a $50 gift card and a $100 gift card. Booyah. And that's just from who's replied so far. And you I. I believe Element is going to send some product as well, so no one should be uh, dying of hyponatremia at the event. No, nope, we'll all, we will all be salty. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to have a bunch of cool stuff. We've just started like reaching out to people um, for things to give away. All the money that we raise through the raffle is going to go straight to the CDTC, uh, 100% of it. So it's all for a good cause. Um, so you can come, have fun, get your hiker fix in win some really, really great stuff and support the CDTC all in one, which is a really good way of multitasking a lot of things at once. Yeah. And probably the biggest draw of them all is uh, Chance likes to have a couple cocktails and then stand on a chair and do some carnival barking. I don't know if likes, like, I don't dislike it. You like it. But I, I, I don't dislike up. it. Um, I. You do like it. <laughs> it's turned into a thing. Yeah. But the problem is, is I have like, a bit of social anxiety um an asterisk next a bit so i get drunk enough that i lose the social anxiety yeah i was gonna say there's and that's the fun part there's nothing shy about you during your carnival barking no and that's because i lube myself up with lots of alcohol alcohol is good for that it's yeah it's called a coping mechanism yeah well it's healthy they'll do it so yeah so i will carnival bark um i just like giving away things i like people getting excited totally that part's fun for me you like yelling yeah yeah 
so yeah, that's December 1st at Improper City in Denver, and that kicks off at 5.30 p.m., goes till 8 or maybe later. Uh, other reminders, yeah, we have a new website. Yeah. We should insert some sort of sound effect here, but uh, this is something Chance and I have been cooking up on behind the scenes for quite a bit now. Uh, we've gotten feedback that the podcast page on the trek was a little bit lackluster. I don't even know if we needed feedback. It was lackluster, but we've got a we've got a nice dedicated website that's got all of the recent episodes. It's got the YouTube videos. It's got our merchandise. It's got ways to get in contact with us or to submit to various segments. It's got an easy link to submit a guest. There's a lot of cool things Leave happening on the website. Leave yeah, a voicemail. All of it. Yeah. Um, so very excited about that. Head on over to backpackerradio.thetrek.co to check out the new site. Um, Is it also backpackerradio.com? Yes. Didn't you nab that like year I do, one? Yeah, I do We've have just holding the that. URL. We're going to redirect that. So yeah, yeah backpackerradio.com for simplicity. We'll take you there. Yeah. And the last thing is we have a YouTube channel. I know we do the shout out for this at the end of every episode, but I wanted to give a special shout out for this one because with our forthcoming interview, um, we're talking a lot about plants and flowers, et cetera. And we're going to have Sarah, our wonderful video person, insert photos of all of the plants that we're talking about so you get to see and enjoy everything that uh, Matt is describing. Yeah, I think this is going to be one that would be fun to watch on YouTube. Even if you're not like a YouTube watcher, this would be a this would be a good excuse to break out of your comfort zone because a lot of the plant talk, Zach was pulling up the plants on his computer as um, Sheriff Woody was talking, and it was fun to look over and see it on Zach's computer as he was talking. Um, so firsthand, I can say it did enhance the experience. Yeah, having a visual aid, at least for me, I thought was helpful. So yes. um, I think you're going to really enjoy the interview regardless, but if you want to take it up a notch, uh, head on over to Backpacker Radio's YouTube page. And everything that we've mentioned, all the links will be included in the show notes. All right, no more beating around the bush. Let's get to today's interview with Matt Sheriff Woody Berger. We are joined by today's guest, Matt Sheriff Woody Berger, a trained botanist with special expertise in rare plant species in California. Matt is also an experienced thru-hiker, having completed the AT, PCT, and CDT for his Triple Crown, in addition to the Arizona Trail, San Diego Trans County Trail, lowest to highest route, and portions of the Great Basin Trail. While hiking, Matt always keeps an eye out for rare, unusual plant species. Matt, thank you so much for joining us here on Backpacker Radio. Thanks for having me. Okay. Um, so... The way our notes have been constructed, uh, I think Rachel thought we were going to talk a lot about hiking. I want to talk a shitload about plants. Yes. I, we can talk about hiking too. Obviously, okay. I think this will interweave perfectly with your story. But uh, before we do either of those things, please give us your background, both what got you into backpacking and the outdoors in general, and then also your uh, interest in botany and plants. Yeah, so I've always kind of been an outdoorsy person. Um, first got into like backpacking and Boy Scouts. I was in a pretty uh, active scout troop. So every season or like every year in the summertime, there'd be some sort of large hiking adventure, usually Philmont um, every couple of years, which is a big backpacking ranch in northern New Mexico in the Rocky Mountains. Um, but we went other places too, we went like Alabama and went to Alaska and did a little backpacking up there and down to Florida didn't really backpack there, but just we were active. So I was outside a whole lot and 
I was really into insects actually um, before anything else. I was like the bug kid in uh, high school and middle school and forever. Um, so on my Boy Scout trips, I would go out and collect seeds from all these native plants because I wanted to attract the insects to my yard, my parents' yard. Um, and so I ended up planting all these seedlings and stuff of the wild plants I found and they grew, they grew just fine. And I just kind of like fell in love with growing the plants and then they kind of took over the obsession away from insects more towards plants. I still love insects, still really fascinated by them, but I don't know them the way that I'm familiar with plants or anything like that. Um, Do you have a favorite bug growing up? So that's kind of how the backpacking and plants got to yeah, periodical cicadas. Um, there's seven species. They're all in the genus Magicicada. They're the ones that come out every 17 years in the big plagues. Yeah, I love them. They're so cool. Yeah. They're coming out here next year. I remember, I don't know what year it was, early in my childhood, but that was definitely a memorable year. In, in interesting ways, also annoying ways, because uh, they're pretty loud. But yeah, definitely, I could see how that would be top dog. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I mean, they're just really fascinating. They have a fungus that infects them that uh, produces, um, I think it's called cathinone. It's kind of like an amphetamine. It kind of like amps them up and makes them more likely to maze a sexually transmitted fungus that the cicadas carry. So after they're infected, they like become more prone to mating with other cicadas and spreading the infection around. It's pretty gnarly. <laughs> Do we know why they hibernate? I don't know if that's the right word, for 17 years? Yeah, so they live in like the larval stage for 17 years underground. People think there's actually two kinds of magic cicadas. There's 17-year and then 13-year. Um, in the south, it's more 13-year, but there's more 17-year broods. But they're thinking that it's those large numbers because no animal can really rely on feeding on them regularly because mm -hmm. they outlive most mammals and most birds or even if they do live long enough to have a second occurrence they don't remember any pattern of what's happening so yeah like a coyote or something or a raccoon that's filling its mouth with as many cicadas as it can eat gets one a, one a lifetime maybe you know so yeah. they can't can't depend on them so that's, the, that's the best guess no one really knows for sure uh -huh. are the same cicadas that are going into the ground for the 17 years and then coming back out like, is that the same cicada seeing daylight twice? Do they live that long? No. No, yeah. So they it's like one giant um, emergence that they all mate, and then they lay eggs, and then they die off. It's kind of like mayflies, if you've like heard of them. Like, they live underwater in rivers and stuff, and then they emerge for a big mating fest, and then they die. But the cicadas live a little longer. They live a few weeks. And, but, yeah, they all die that summer that they emerge. So it's their young that come next time, so... Huh. Their grandparents are like, you know, 34 years older than they are. It's kind of interesting. How did your parents feel about you um, bringing home plants to lure insects into your yard? They were okay with it. I kind of took over all the garden beds. So, like, I ripped out hosta. I hate hostas. They're just like, you know, basic, cheap. Home Depot plants. So I ripped them out of a bed that just had hostas in it. And then I just started planting all my plants. And then I just kind of like expanded, taking over this bed, expanding this bed until I had a pretty big native plant garden by high school. Uh, now it's been uh, mostly destroyed back into to 
tomatoes and hostas. <laughs> Your mom's like getting uh, all these plants yeah, from Home they're Depot. Good. They're cheap. <laughs> plants suck, mom. Yeah. I mean, all plants are better than no plants, so yeah. well, unless they're invasive plants, that's no fun. Yeah. So, plants surpassed bugs. You say that was in high school. That probably happened in like middle school. I'd say middle school. Yeah. Okay. Late middle school, early high school. So yeah. I like started becoming really obsessed with plants. And at what point did you know that this was something you wanted to pursue for higher education? Um, by late high school, I was I was pretty sure I wanted to go into horticulture, um, and then I had to pick where to go. So I was like, um, I my, I had never I had never been out west at that point. I think I went to California once. I was like you know, 13 year old or something like that. But I was like, oh, what's nearby that's mountainous West Virginia. So I went and looked up, you know, they have a horticulture program in West Virginia. And then I looked up how much tuition was and it was like $4,300 a year or something at the time. So I was like, looks like I'm going to school in West Virginia, (laughs) nice and cheap. They have my major, it's in the mountains. It was pretty nice. What are the career paths for a horticulturist? Like what if, if you have an interest in plants, what are your options for like employment after college? There's a few routes you can go. Um, kind of like abandoned horticulture. I, I like growing plants, but I don't have anywhere to grow them. I don't really live anywhere um, long term. Um, but you can go into uh, like production, like working in a greenhouse, producing the plants. Um, some people go landscape architecture route, so um, they're kind of more design, but they also are planting the plants. They're not the ones producing them, though, but those two things go hand in hand. Um, yeah, any sort of growing plants. You could even go into, like, agriculture's kind of branch of horticulture, you know, just mass producing food crops and um, timber and other things like that. I'm dumb. Now I'm botany, so botany is more like science. You're you're answering my exact question. Like just yeah, what is the difference between botany okay. and horticulture? <laughs> yeah, so horticulture is studying the production of plants, growing plants, how to make more plants, how to breed specific varieties of a daylily or something like that. Or, um, you know, it, it has to do with the growing thing. And then being a botanist is just kind of the more general study of plants so you just in, you could be a field botanist which is mostly what i do i'm out in the field collecting data about plants um rare plants invasive plants or you could be academic botanist where you're doing research and you're you know you want to know where a certain plant grows or you do a flora which is where you go to a certain area and you collect and document all the plants in that area and just make like a book essentially you make a book a list of all the plants that grow in that area just to generate more knowledge about what grows where um you know finding rare populations and stuff a lot of people that do flores find new species while doing it because they're focusing on every single plant not just the nice pretty showy flowers and the nice big trees you're looking at little tiny grasses and aquatic things that grow on the edges of ponds that you know and normal people, even if they like plants, are just not going to inspect that much. Um, so, yeah, there's several different paths in botany, too. I just like the hiking in the forest, 
and looking at plants or hiking in the desert and looking at plants. So that's what I do mostly is field botany work. So I've got that you, your first through hike, AT 2012. Um, what year did you graduate school? 2012. Okay. So it was like immediately after. Yeah. yeah. So you're chomping yeah. at the bit to go out into the field and use all your plant knowledge skills and combine that with your love of the outdoors and hiking, backpacking. Um, so I think I th an interesting way to maybe do the chronology of your hiking is to go through and talk about some of the standout plants and interesting things that you have seen and maybe that others should see during their hike. So let's start with the AT, and which you did in 2012. Um, somebody going out with no knowledge of the plant scene on the AT whatsoever, what are some of the things that they should be looking for? What are some of the plants that get you most excited? There's a lot of cool plants on the AT. Um, you know, the AT gets a lot of crap for not being scenic or not being, you know, huge viewpoints nonstop like the PCT often is or the CDT. Um, but biodiversity when it comes to trees is un completely unmatched compared to the other trails. Like California does not have that many species of trees, nor does all those coniferous forests, you know, there might be 10 tree species, con coniferous tree species. Um, and then you come over into the eastern U.S. and you're on the Appalachian Trail and there might be like 150 or 200 tree species like in the region of forests that you're walking through, especially in the southern Appalachian Mountains. Um, I mean, that's including like shrubs and stuff, too. But um, yeah, just like if you want to see a large variety of, you know, trees, which people often do. The AT has a lot more variety there um, when it comes to just straight up uh, biodiversity. Uh, the Pacific Crest Trail is going to have a lot more because California is one of the most biodiverse places in the world, mm. um, or at least in the temperate world. Um, but yeah, hiking on the AT, I went southbound. So I started in Maine um, and I, I didn't have any clue what I was doing. I didn't plan this hike. Uh, my friend John was graduating college the same time as me. So I decided, or he decided when we were out at Felmont one year, I think it was like 2008 or nine, um, that we should hike the Appalachian Trail when we finished because we enjoyed backpacking. And I think I watched like a Netflix documentary on the Appalachian Trail. And that was like the extent of my research on it. So I had no clue. Yeah. Was that the we Nat went, Geo like, documentary? With, like, probably whatever one was around in like 20, 2011 or 12. Yeah. Um, it was cool. It got me pumped to go hike out there. And, you know, Appalachian Mountains are kind of where I grew up backpacking with scouts and family and stuff. Um, but I, we had like the Kelty packs, you know, with the aluminum frame, external bars, and we just clipped like carabiner, you know, Nalgene bottles all over and they're swinging. It was like the most noob looking experience. I had a machete and I had a slingshot and I had uh, a fishing pole. And I was, I thought like, I thought we were like living off the land kind of stuff. So like, <laughs> it was pretty embarrassing. Like Four days in, like we're in the hundred mile wilderness somewhere. Like my Achilles tendon is like starting to like tear and like grind and making these really bad feelings. And uh, I jumped off there at like Joe Mary road or something um, and got off trail for like two weeks and then like got my shit together, did a little bit of research, dropped 20 pounds off the pack, left the machete and the, <laughs> 
uh, fishing pole and stuff. I did catch some fish though. I caught and ate some trout like the first couple days, but you know, we were going 10 miles a day or something like that. Um, it was pretty brutal. I, I learned my lesson pretty quick. Um, so then I came back and continued hiking with John from whose trial name is Buzz Lightyear, by the way, Sheriff Woody and Buzz Lightyear. Hmm. Um, so then, yep, continued going south. Um, and then from then on out, like it was awesome. It was great. Pack was pretty late. We were going southbound while Nobos were finishing the trail. So we're seeing all these super lightweight packs and like wondering how the hell. Like, what, what, what are you filtering your water with? Like, we had, like, a gravity filter at the time that we thought was cool. And then we were watching these dudes just put, like, a drop of bleach in their water. And we're like, hell, let's do that. So <laughs> we started doing the drinking the bleach method, which might have shipped off a few years of my life. But uh, we never got sick. Um, my teeth got kind of white, you know? Like, I think it, it's got to be so bad for you, but it worked. <laughs> that's crazy now that you mentioned it uh so i did aquamira which is similar to chlorine and yeah my teeth were yeah. so white after the trail it was crazy like and to think yeah. it's doing that to your teeth what it's doing to your gut flora and the your lining. insides yeah <laughs> can't be good that's a good point no it, it can't be good but man i was you know young if anything wasn't going to kill me it was then um but yeah so i, I basically learned the hard way um, how to get into hiking. There was not a lot of blogs or information or anything. There was no gut hook app or whatever they call it now. Um, no, like GPS. We had paper maps and a data book. Um, and it was kind of fun that way, but those paper maps are heavy. They're like the big giant folding up ones. It's just kind of interesting how it's evolved just since I started hiking. Um, all the ultra leg gear started, it was probably in its infancy then. And now it's like any like, hiker can go on YouTube and watch a million videos and just show up like basically at least with the right gear. I don't know whether or not being prepared is the right word for it, but not showing up like a complete moron like I did. Yeah. Yeah. While we're in the Northern part of the AT, can you talk a little bit about like the plants that people will see in the Alpine zones? Um, When I was hiking, there was a photo I had posted of us taking a break, like sitting on some rocks because it was, you know, just a spot that looked like good places to sit. And the comment section had shocked me because it was like people going nuts about not touching the alpine plants. And in my mind, I was like, well, we're sitting on rocks, but I hadn't expected so much reaction for them. And I didn't realize like how special those plants are. Um, yeah, if you could walk yeah, us through they're those. Pretty sensitive. They're pretty sensitive up there, um, especially because so many people hike like around Mount Washington and the presidentials and um Katahdin especially um all those areas it, it, everything's just really slow going because it's so cold most of the year the growing season's really short so they just don't reproduce that fast or anything um and trampling them obviously not good but if, honestly if you're standing on the rock you're not hurting any of the plants or anything. but yeah people will definitely get up in arms about that which is you know a good thing that they're they want to protect the plants but and interesting about those alpine areas up in the northeast, uh, there are some of the exact same species on all three trails. There's a plant called Silene acalis, which is like a little, um, it's like a matted plant with little pink flowers that you can find on Mount Washington. And then you can also see it in the Rocky Mountains on the CDT. And then I'm pretty sure it's in the mountains of Washington, too. I could be wrong on that, though. But it's one of the circumboreal plants, like the Arctic 
in the high alpine is essentially exactly the same to a plant. It makes no difference. So you can go to Greenland and you'll find a lot of the same plants that you find on the mountains in Maine or on Mount Washington, which is pretty cool, I think. Um, and you'll find them over in Alaska and just across the whole Northern Hemisphere and Europe and Norway and the Alps. Some grow all the way into um, the Himalayas that are the same plants that grow in Maine. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, but, I was... Uh, go ahead. Maybe yours is more relevant. Why not? Okay. Um, well, on the topic of finding them over in Greenland, I just thought this is like a cool plant fact. How you were saying like the southern portion of the AT has like such a diversity of trees and species. I was reading the other day that part of why that is is because like when it got really cold and we had like the last like glacial ice sheets come down, the plants in the east coast like they traveled south to like where the climate was matching what they were used to. Mm. But in Europe, they couldn't do that because they had all like the Alps and like the mountains below them. So it blocked them from traveling south. Mm. So when the ice sheets retreated and the plants went back up north, like that's why you only get that in the southern US where the Appalachian Trail goes through is because they had the space to go down mm. where in Europe and yep. other places, they didn't have that room to move. I thought that was really yep. cool. Yeah, it is really neat. Uh, it's called a glacial refugia. So a lot of like, interesting ice age plants when they got pushed down some of them got pushed all the way down to florida in the panhandle and there's a bunch of really rare relict plants that got stuck there because it's it's like ravines and stuff it's kind of weird it's a really weird habitat in florida and there's two endemic plants trees that grow there there's the florida yew and the florida toria which is related to a yew it's, they're both conifers but they got stuck in these little ravines and then everything from there all the way to the appalachian mountains is not suitable habitat for them anymore. Even though if you plant them in the Appalachian Mountains, they grow like awesome. They love it they love the habitat. They just couldn't get back there. But a lot of things like the oaks and the chestnuts and maples and stuff like that are able to just migrate back north after the ice ages. But because there's such a large elevation range in the Southern Appalachian Mountains too, there was room for plants that liked it cold to go down and up and vice versa with plants that liked it a little bit warmer. So biodiversity was preserved there versus, you know, farther up north where they were either just swiped clean by glaciers or just covered in snowpack for a lot of the year. As part of a botany or horticulture degree, do you have to study Latin? No, I never took any Latin classes or anything like that. You pick up like adjectives mostly. Like I couldn't say a sentence in Latin, but you get familiar with a lot of like Latin species names because they just mean they're just adjectives like red or uh, green or of the forest or of the desert and things like that. So it's cool. Like you'll see words just like in your normal life later that you're like, like I just was uh, looking up the word lunatic. It just means moonstruck. Like Luna is the moon, you know, like a Luna moth or whatever. And a lunatic was someone that was afflicted by the moon, which, you know, who knows what that meant back in the day, but. It just means you're like crazy or something or people like went wild because the moon got them or you know yeah so you learn like it's fun like learning you know the latin words because you can like piece together stuff you've known your entire life and then suddenly you'll just be sitting there one day reading it and you'll be like oh okay that makes sense now i know what that word is like that yeah um, but you don't have to take latin but it would definitely be a helpful thing to do i was gonna say because it seems very intimidating to approach all the plant species names being in latin without an under because to me it sounds like gibberish 
but you've yeah. been around it enough and you said that you've picked up the adjectives now that it makes sense to you. It it seems like that would be logical for that to be part of the curriculum, but yeah, thank you for explaining. Yeah. That. I'll say the only reason that like everybody uses Latin is because nobody speaks Latin. It's a dead language. No one's going to, people criticize you the way you pronounce plant names or, you know, animals or mushrooms or whatever all the time. Like, You're saying that wrong. And sometimes I'm guilty of that too. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's, so many ways to say it because nobody speaks it so you'll meet someone who'll say like plant name and you'll just be like what did you call it and it, it doesn't make any difference um but we all use latin because it's um most of the world is familiar with the latin alphabet you know like you can pronounce the words you know obviously in like china or asia or something like that where they have their own script um even still, most people there see English words and stuff. I don't know if they're familiar with how they're pronounced or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But they just try to pick a word or a language that most people, and of course, it was back in the day when Europeans were all full of themselves and stuff. So, so it was basically so Europeans could all understand and talk it to people that spoke different languages and people could read their papers in different languages. Um, but, you know, Pick any dead language you want. It doesn't make any difference to me if everyone just agrees. Because it's nice to be able to like go to Tasmania or Chile or something like that. And you can talk to a botanist there, even if you don't speak the same language. If they say a plant name, like you'll know what it is, which mm. is kind of interesting. Even though you don't know anything else that they're saying. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, before we move off the Latin topic, do you know like an articulate way to describe like the naming process? Cause I had read at one point something about like the first word, how the first letter is capitalized and it kind of means like the main group or something. And then the, the words after the first word are always lowercase. They don't have the first letter capitalized, but I personally, I can't articulate that very well, but I thought that was a nice way to understand it. Yeah, you can kind of think of it as like a person's name, um, kind of reverse though. Like think of the first word, which is the genus. Think of that as somebody's last name. So like, there's burger matt there's burger mark and burger marianne like my parents and stuff like that uh so burger is the genus and then matt is the more specific version of it so you could have like um a, a rose is the genus rosa and then there's a species called rosa woodsii which is a specific species of rose in that genus and then above genus is family and rose is in the rose family, which is rose AC, and you can go up the you know ladder. But when you're talking plants, like family and genus are really all like, you don't know, need to go and get into the phyla and other higher stuff like that. But yeah, you can just think of it as like a name. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the easiest way of understanding it. But it does get pretty confusing, especially if. Uh, they're named like a genus is named after a person and it's just like it doesn't make it's just some crazy name from like Russia or you know Belgium or something like that like a genus is named after like there's the California poppy you know everybody knows the pretty golden poppies you see them everywhere the genus is Escholzia E-S-C-H-S-C-H-O-L-Z-I-A like it's hard to pronounce but it's just poppy so like that that's one that could you know could have had a better genus name Hmm. It just gets confusing when you start doing names like that. So honing in again on the AT, what plant species uh, are exciting to you that people wouldn't see on most of the other 
common popular hiking trails? Sure. Uh, there's a lot. Um, the spring ephemerals is a whole group of plants that only emerge like in early spring before trees leaf out. And that doesn't happen any other trail that doesn't happen on the West coast or anything like that, at least to the extent that happens in the Appalachian mountains, everywhere on the Appalachian trail. So if you're ever hiking the trail in like late March or April, um, you're seeing the trilliums, um, bellflower or blue bluebells. Um, there's uvularia, which is like, um, forget the common name. It's like a little yellow bell that hangs down. There's the Dutchman's breeches. Bloodroot is a really common one that people are familiar with. There's a couple of different orchids and things like that. Um, but that's like a whole set of spring wildflowers that you don't get on any of the other trails. Like none of those, very few of those species are also out West. Hmm. Um, and then there's a bunch of trees that you don't get out West. You don't get any bir or, uh, beach. There's no beach trees at all in Western North America. Um, there's a hemlock that's only in the Carolina, like Southern Appalachian areas called the Carolina hemlock, um, which is a nice big tree. It's pretty uncommon. Um, and it grows pretty much right on the ridges of the Appalachian trail, like in that general, general area. Um, American chestnut is a really cool one that I really, really like. You will definitely see them on the Appalachian trail. If you hike it, American um, chestnuts. Yeah. You definitely will see them. You might walk past them and they, you don't, you won't see the nuts very often because they don't often get big enough to produce flowers and nuts and things like that. Um, because there's a chestnut blight that you guys might know about it. Um, they killed, people always say it killed like all the chestnut trees. Well, it really knocked back all the chestnut trees. So there's still millions and millions and millions of them that just exist from the old original trees root system. And then they'll put up shoots every year until the blight kills them and they fall over and die. But oftentimes on ridgetops where it's really windy and kind of drier micro ha uh, microhabitat, or in areas where wildfire has gone by, uh, the chestnuts love it and they shoot straight up and they'll fruit and they'll have flowers and everything. Um, they have a really distinctive leaf. Um, once you recognize it, you'll see it a lot. Um, and when I hiked the Appalachian Trail, I saw tons of chestnuts growing right on the trail. Just most of them don't get big enough to produce fruit. So it's, it just is like a green sort of shrub in the background imagery. I was gonna say, I didn't think you could see like big ones on the trail. Cause I, what I had thought was that like you could see the babies, but then by the time they grow to a certain age, that's when the blight gets them. Um, yeah. Do you know spots on the trail where someone like could keep an eye out for them? Yeah. On, on the Blue Ridge mountains, I was just up in there where the trail goes near there. Um, pretty much anywhere where it's like a drier ridge top, not really high up, but maybe like, two to four thousand feet or something like that um you can find them pretty much everywhere on the trail from georgia to vermont um but you're not going to see big ones like you said all the big ones are mostly dead but i've seen a lot of them that were over a foot wide you know the trunk a foot wide um, they're usually pretty gnarly um the blight they'll have blight they'll be infected but just not dead they're just kind of struggling to stay alive um, and then they will eventually die and then they'll put up another stem and then that'll grow. But most of the time they get like, you know, three, four five inches in diameter of the stems. And then that's when they get the blight and die. But every now and then you'll get some big ones. I've seen them like maybe 50 feet tall here and there. But again, not really producing nuts or anything. Do you keep up with like what they've been trying to do with 
I don't know if selectively breeding them is the right term, but trying to breed that like resistance to the blight. Yeah, there's several different things going on. There's a lot of different um, organizations. There's the American Chestnut Foundation. Some are trying to cross. They have been crossing back, which means they're breeding American chestnut with a Chinese chestnut, which is naturally resistant to the blight, which is where the blight, the blight came from Asia. Um, and the trees there just get the fungus and it doesn't really do much to them. But the trees in North America were never exposed to this pathogen. It's kind of like smallpox, like getting to North America, you know, bad news for things that haven't developed uh, resistance. Like it, anytime you move an organism from one continent to another, bad things seem to happen. So um, the chestnut blight um, doesn't kill Chinese chestnuts. So they're trying to breed them with American chestnuts. Then they plant all those chestnuts out. Then they infect them all with the blight. And then the ones that die, they get rid of. And then they take the ones that survive that are 50-50 American Chinese, and they breed those together. So then you have a 75% American chestnut, 25% Chinese. They infect all those with blight. The ones that survive, you take them away. So you're basically just trying to get this one gene or, you know, a set of genes that is making the difference. They're either producing some, you know, chemical to fight off the fungus or something's happening with the Chinese chestnut that the Americans aren't getting. So they're trying to do that, but you're never going to get a full American chestnut back. Then you're getting like a hybrid tree. that's going to be mostly American chestnut genes, but still some Chinese. And then recently as technology is uh, advancing a lot and plant science and stuff. And now there's a thing you might've heard of CRISPR Cas9. It's like a gene editing tool that you can use. And they're trying to get a gene out of wheat which makes, I think it's, it's an enzyme. I think it's like calcium oxalate oxidase, but it, it like destroys calcium oxide or whatever the thing that the fungus produces. It's naturally in wheat anyway. It's part of wheat's like self-defense against fungus itself. So they're trying to get that gene, stick it in a chestnut. So you have 100% American chestnut with the one gene that the wheat has that kills the fungus or prevents the fungus from killing the tree and now those exist they have them they're done and they're ready to be planted out but then you run into the whole genetic engineering you know people should we release these because once you put them in the forest you can't undo it because those trees will begin breeding with you know any american chestnuts that are still out there you know and in theory and scientifically it should be completely fine it shouldn't make any difference you put something from an edible plant you can eat into the chestnut but it's one of those things that is rightfully, you know, contentious. You don't know exactly everything that's going to happen and you can't really rake it back once you do it. So hmm. I don't know what's happening with that. that I don't. That's fascinating. But, I've only heard of CRISPR in the context of human gene editing. I didn't know that they were using it for plants. That makes perfect sense and probably the more yep. practical application. So if you had your say in the matter, would we do this sort of genetic engineering for plants to solve the issues that you're describing? I think it's worth it. In the case of the American chestnut, it's not like um, Monsanto making Roundup resistant soybeans or something, you know, where you can just with impunity spray pesticides everywhere and your soybeans are not going to be killed, you know, where there's huge ecological repercussions, obviously with that. And, you know, you get into the uh, corporation morality side so I think it's a good idea, but, you know, I'm not in charge of stuff like that. I don't ever want to be the ones making the calls for that stuff because I get the the pushback. Like, 
once you do it, you can't undo it kind of thing. Um, so I don't know. It depends on what you're doing exactly. Like we know that they took a wheat gene, stuck it in a chestnut, a chestnut tree with a wheat gene, and now it doesn't die of blight. And, you know, it can feed all these animals and stuff that people makes great timber, you know, it'd be a great tree to have back. You know, there's multiple ways of doing it. I'll leave it up to other people to decide which is the best way to do that. <laughs> Speaking of, of the, um, well, we covered the chestnut blight, but other things you'll see on the AT, I know you mentioned hemlocks earlier. Can you talk about the woolly adelgid a bit? Yeah, so both of the hemlocks that grow on that bison trail is the Canadian hemlock and the Carolina hemlock. They both can get the hemlock woolly adelgid, which is like a little aphid. Um, that you'll see them on the branches that just kind of look like a little cottony poof and they'll be all over the stems They're essentially an aphid and they stick their little proboscis into the tree stem and drink the sap. And, um, then that lets other things come and infect each of those little tiny holes and it just puts stress on the tree and they just kind of have been dying off in a lot of areas. I don't know exactly how that affects the Carolina hemlock, the rarer one. Um, I think it definitely gets on there, but all the trees that I, that I have ever seen looked pretty good. Um, but a lot of areas, the big, huge, old, awesome hemlocks that like are down in creeks and the coves and stuff in the Southern Appalachian mountains are already dead. They died, you know, a decade ago or something like that. Um, there's also a fir, a delgin that is attacking the uh, Fraser fir now, um, and Southern or Southern Appalachian mountains. So the Eastern oh, I didn't US know about is that. Covered in weird parasites from other parts of the world. There's white pine blister rust. That's everywhere. That's out west. That's in the east, killing all the white pine trees. Um, that's, I think, also from Asia or Europe or something like that. But yeah, essentially, don't buy plants from other parts of the world and bring them here. Like it's really, really a bad thing. Or insects. Don't bring. Don't bring anything alive back and forth between the continents. Like they could not have naturally done that. Like seagulls and like there's birds that will fly you know their routes from alaska to tasmania or something like that so they're naturally moving back and forth there but when you take like a hedgehog and then you put it in new zealand um turns out they're really invasive in new zealand now there's hedgehogs everywhere there like we're driving around and you see dead hedgehogs all over the roads and they like stir up the ground a lot which prevents a lot of seedlings from taking root and it's just like the most unexpected shit like don't like a hedgehog seems like a pretty innocent thing to move around, but they're screwing up the landscape a little bit, at least in New Zealand. So yeah, moral of the story, don't buy plants from other countries and bring them to the United States or send them to other countries either. On the subject of invasive species, what are some of the worst invasive species along the AT? AT, oh, that's a good question. Amur honeysuckle is maybe in some of the lower elevation areas of like Pennsylvania. It's really bad here in Ohio. It's like a giant bush honeysuckle. Um, and it just crowds out all the uh, spring ephemeral plants that need the, you know, early sunlight. And they, they just, it crowds everything out. Garlic mustard's another pretty bad one. Um, uh, kudzu is like a really famous one. Everybody knows about kudzu like taking over. It's a big vining. It's in the pea family. It makes these nice little pea pods and stuff. Um, but it'll just completely carpet some areas, but I don't think it's very common on the Appalachian Trail itself. Um, there's privet, which is just like a European 
hedge shrub that people brought over and that thing's everywhere out there on the AT. Um, all kinds of grasses. There's like Japanese stilt grass um, that just carpets the ground. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. We should, we should probably make an effort to get off the AT because we're yeah. almost 40 minutes in and we've got other trails to talk about. Uh, I did have one more question and I am blanking on it. Yeah, let's move on. It'll come to me. If you've listened to this podcast for any period of time, I've sounded like a broken record about the importance of supplementing with electrolytes while backpacking. During my first through hike, I landed in the hospital with a condition called hyponatremia, a fancy term for low blood sodium levels. Symptoms included intense headaches, dizziness, and generally feeling like a bag of Richards. This happened as a result of heavy sweating, over-consuming water, and under-consuming electrolytes. A couple of saline IVs and a hefty medical bill later, and my energy was magically restored. Somewhat counterintuitively, but electrolytes become even more important in cold temperatures and at elevation, as our thirst decreases at a faster pace than we lose fluids via sweat and urine. In other words, electrolytes and backpacking go together like peanut butter and jelly, which is why I'm thrilled to introduce today's sponsor, Elements. Elements is a science-backed zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix designed to support active hydration and a healthy lifestyle. Element has enough sodium, potassium, and magnesium to help you feel and perform your best on trail and beyond. Electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and magnesium are essential for energy as well as muscle and brain function. And unlike other electrolyte products, Element has generous portions of them. You're guaranteed to find an Element flavor you love. There's fan favorite raspberry salt. You can get spicy with mango chili or mix chocolate salt into your morning coffee for a mean mocha. I've enjoyed all of their flavors, but my personal favorite is the citrus salt. It tastes like a margarita, tequila sold separately. Free stuff alert, Backpacker Radio listeners can score a free sample pack, which comes with one packet of every flavor, eight in total, with any purchase by going to drinklmnt.com slash trek. Again, that's drinklmnt.com slash trek, and you'll get eight free packets with any purchase. You have to use the URL, no coupon code is necessary. That's drinklmnt.com slash trek to get this deal, which is only good for a limited time. So next on the chronology of hiking was the PCT in 2014. Is that right? Yep. Let's talk about yeah. some of your favorite standout plants on the PCT. I know you mentioned that it has the most diverse ecosystem of any of the long trails. Um, so yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that's probably a pretty long list, but yeah, I would be curious to get your take. Someone hiking the PCT, what are the things that they should have on their uh, botany bingo card? Yeah, so there's a lot of cool plants that pretty much everybody is going to see that are really interesting. Um, people see that I'm on Instagram and do plants of hike. And so they send me plants every single year. Like they DM me and there's like two that they send just more than anything else. And it's the snow plant, which you guys might know. It's like the bright red, really about, I don't know, maybe a foot tall or less, just the most weird scarlet plant. And people often think it's a fungus or something like that, but um, it's mycoheterotrophic, which just means it's parasitic on fungus in the soil that is symbiotic with trees. So they're stealing the sugar from the fungus, which gets their sugars from the tree. So it's just a roundabout way of 
getting photosynthetic products without having to do it yourself. It's a nice, a lot of plants do this. Um, and they're in the blueberry family. So they're related to rhododendrons and blueberries and cranberries and things like that. But yeah, it's an interesting little parasitic plant. Um, bright red. You'll see it everywhere from like San Jacinto. They grow right in Idlewild. I've seen them like all around Idlewild. Um, all the way north till maybe the northern Sierra. And then I think they kind of taper off. They might be in like the Klamath or something too. See um, the name of that one, one It's snow plant. It often blooms in areas where snow mm -hmm. has yeah. just gotten done melting. Um, but yeah, you like, you're, you're guaranteed to see it if you hike the PCT. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got probably 100 photos of this plant <laughs> for my camera roll. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's really cool. Humming, I've seen hummingbirds go to it. It's bright red. It grows in the middle of like dark forests where nothing else can bloom. But since they don't need to photosynthesize, they are perfectly fine with growing in the middle of a dark forest. Mm. Um, you just got to depend on your pollinators coming through. And it's usually a pretty large, open kind of first forest where they can move around pretty easily. Yeah. And then there's another one, um, another plant people send me a lot. It's like a little uh, kind of like camouflage patterned pea pod that's like white and bright red. And that's the balloon milk vetch, Astragalus whitneyi. Um, people send me that one a lot too. And that plant grows mostly in like Northern California and the Sierra and in the Trinity Alps. Um, it's a really cool plant. You'll, it's on the ground, so it's kind of low. You, you might walk past it, but it's a really interesting one. Hmm. Those are the two that people are always like sending me photos of. Though. It almost but, looks radish-like. I don't know how to describe it, but yeah, that is interesting. I mean, uh, it's like really papery and it's like inflated. It's like a balloon. Like you can pop it with your fingers and it makes a nice satisfying pop. Uh. Um, but it's just like an alpine plant that it's, it's in the pea family. It's related to like, you know, beans and stuff. And then the pods break off and then they blow around in the wind because they're really white. So that's how they disperse their feeds. One of the plants that I had heard about in the desert that I had never heard prior to the PCT which was like in a worrying way was people start talking about poodle dog bush. Mm, yeah. um, I think if someone's planning to hike the PCT, they might be in the phase of not having heard about it yet. But then yep. you, you start getting all those Facebook warnings leading up to it. Can you tell us a little bit about that plant? Yeah. Poodle dog's got to be the most infamous plant on the AT or PCT. Um, it's in the genus area of Dictyon. It's related to like Yerba Santa. I don't know if that means anything to People. It's a, it's a, I don't know. It's a big plant, and it looks like weed, and it smells kind of skunky, like marijuana too. Um, but later in the season, kind of maybe later in the hiking season, if you're still in Southern California, you can see it bloom, and it's got these really nice purple flowers that come out all over it. Um, but it causes contact dermatitis, which just means it gives you like a really wicked, nasty, blistering rash. And you, you'll hear people talk about it. You'll hear people saying they took some alternate route to get around the poodle dog. When I did it in 2014, there was a poodle dog bush reroute that was like labeled and like, you know, people go this way. And we walked right through a ton of it and nothing ever happened to us. Hmm. I know I've never met anybody that's had the rash from it. And I know that everybody that followed us went right through all the plants brushing against them. But then you always hear about the one person that got it and then ended up going to the hospital to get like a steroid shot to like knock back the thing. So in a certain small percentage of people that like touch the plant, it's just like the, whatever the oils on it, kind of like poison ivy, you know, whatever chemicals on it, like your skin reacts to it. 
I don't think there's a high likelihood that you're going to react to it. But if you do react to it, I think it's a pretty miserable time. And the plants are tall, so they're touching like every part of your body from like your shoulders, your ankles, your legs. So that's one to look out for. It grows only in like the southern kind of desert chaparral kind of areas. Once you're in the Sierra, you'll never see it again. Um, but yeah, that's definitely one to keep an eye out. And like, it smells skunky. The leaves sort of look like marijuana. So it's, it's a pretty distinct plant. Yeah, I've always been really curious about that because uh, when I hiked through, I did I went southbound, so I went through in October. I don't know if it was more prominent than when what the northbounders see, but it was everywhere when I hiked. And, you know, I was being as careful as I possibly could. It just made perfect sense to me that with thousands of people trudging through that there was going to be some percentage that were making contact with this plant. And I very rarely hear stories of people going to the hospital, but I do hear those stories. So yeah, yeah. thanks for clarifying that. I didn't realize that it was only reactive to certain people. Should we start a conspiracy yeah. theory? <laughs> the aliens. Has anyone ever actually seen? I, I know one alien? person that <laughs> went to the hospital for it. And yeah. Pretty... Did you see them yourself? Yeah, did you see them? That's <laughs> true. I saw photos, could have been doctored. That could have been mid-journey for sure. Yeah. Yeah, if you Google poodle dog rash, you'll get some pretty gnarly, like, grody blisters. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's um, another thing to note about it is it almost always grows in recently burned areas. So if there's been a forest fire in the last year to five years or something like that, that's where it's going to be. It really, really likes burnt habitat, which sometimes they close anyway because of, you know, erosion or unstable trail or whatever. So, but you're going to see it on the trail, like almost guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Do animals, would animals react to it the same way people would? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know at all. Because a lot of animals don't react to poison oak. Like goats eat it, horses eat it. Like they oh. it. it doesn't do anything to them. And then, you know, humans makes nasty blisters and stuff. So I don't know if it's the same thing. You just see a squirrel with like a pussing eyeball. Yeah, I got an extra fat there. <laughs> Squirrels eat poison ivy berries, just picking them off and eating them. And mm. apparently it doesn't do them any harm. But I don't think much of any herbivore would want to eat poodle dogs. It's really like covered in these like oily glands. Mm. It stinks. Like it'd be a pretty gross thing to eat. I have I don't know. People make tea out of other plants in that same genus. So I, I, I is don't that, know. I don't, is that also the nettle plant? No, it's... Um, you you mentioned not. yerba. So is, is that part of like the yerba yeah. mate group? No, so yerba just means herb in Spanish. Okay. So <laughs> they won't be like related. <laughs> not necessarily related. Yeah. Um, but yeah, people like to harvest that one a lot. Not poodle dog, but the thing called yerba santa, which is in the same genus. They're in the family Namacy now. They used to be Boraginaceae, which is like uh, Phacelias and uh, Amsinkia. I don't know. Because I've, I've had nettle tea before. I don't know if it's the same as the stinging nettle, but... Yeah, it, it is. It is, okay. Pretty good tea. Yeah, so you can eat nettles if you boil them, um, apparently. I've eaten them. We used to eat them in Boy Scouts, you know, just as like a goofy thing to do. It tastes pretty good. The tea's good. Yeah. And I ate the leaves. They're kind of like really stringy spinach. Hmm. But, yeah. So I remembered my question from the AT portion, uh, which we'll okay. round up. We'll say any hike. I'll, I'll leave this as sort of a, a lob for you. But one of the things that I was blown away with during my AT hike was the white birch bark, how that could be used as tinder 
Like even oh, yeah. it doesn't matter how wet the the rest of the wood is. If you have white birch bark, you're going to be able to get a fire started. Are there other maybe bark, other plants that have utility that would be especially applicable to someone doing a long distance backpacking trip? Um, for like starting fires or I'll open it up to anything. Yeah. I guess we can round up to include, yeah. Eating obviously like, you know, stuff like berries are pretty obvious, but, um, I I guess I'm just probing for plant fun facts for things that could be used to enhance your hike in any way. Okay. Um, yeah, the birch is pretty nice. That stuff, it's full of oils and burns really, really easily. Um, all the berry species, of course, are tasty. A lot of them are familiar with people. You, something that you wouldn't see in normal life, probably, unless you live in the Pacific Northwest, are thimbleberries. And you'll find those on the, you know, most of the through hikes. There's a different species on the Appalachian Trail, but it's the same. They're very similar. You can eat them, too. Um, there's miner's lettuce on the Appalachian Trail and maybe parts of the CDT, which is a species of Claytonia. It's a pretty easily recognizable plant um, and it's a little succulent, kind of like spinach is kind of like thickish, you know, it tastes sort of like spinach. Super good. It's a really common plant. It's a little bit weedy. It's native. So go ahead and eat some, you know, I wouldn't eat anything rare, but you're not, that's a really abundant plant. Hmm. Um, you'll find that everywhere in California. Um, what else is there? I know in the Southern Appalachians, I saw people out harvesting what I think was for ramps which I know oh, yeah. sell for an outrageous amount of money. I, people out there with, by like the bucket full were pulling them out. Um, it, it are, does ramp grow in other parts of the Triple Crown Trails? No, ramps are just in the Appalachian Mountains, but there are species of Allium, which is the genus that onions are in. So it's just an onion. There's the Sierra onion that a lot of people eat on the uh, Pacific Crest Trail. Um, they all have that same onion kind of taste as ramps. Uh, ramps have like a weird really cult following in Appalachia. I don't really know why people are obsessed with them and they are good and they're tasty, but it's, it's an onion. Like they eat the leaves, chives kind of like you would chop the leaves up or put them on a pizza or make um, pesto or something out of them. Um, Is it sort of the yingling effect because you can't get it in other places? People have a higher yeah. demand on it. Yeah. Interestingly, you bring that up um, on the Appalachian trail yingling you know, you go through Pennsylvania and when I was doing it in 2012, Yingling was like all the rage, you know, in Ohio because you couldn't get it in Ohio. And then, so when we walked through, we ended up like buying cases of Yingling every time we were in like, we went to Hershey park and got like kind of blasted and then went and rode all the roller coasters and stuff. We paid some guy like $150 to shuttle us from the AT to Hershey park. <laughs> the most like, expensive we're- Yingling of all time. We're like, we're fucking going to Hershey Park. Yeah. We're like so tired. And like, we were like dreaming of like the candy and like, just like cute, you know, they sell those like novelty, like five pound Reese cups and stuff. We we're just like fantasizing about eating all the chocolate. So yeah, yeah, we, we paid a ridiculous amount of money to get there um, to get you. But um, on other trails, what other kind of plants might you encounter? I know. I know isn't harvesting of ginseng also a big deal on the AT? It's a bad deal. Yeah. Um, that area is so heavily traveled. I have seen ginseng on the AT. It will grow right next to the trail because I don't think people, most people recognize what it is. But if you do know what it looks like, yeah, it's going to be picked really quick. Mm. And it's just not worth, you know, dealing with. There's not that much. of it. It's such an over-harvested plant. Just leave it if you see it on the AT. Someone else is probably going to rip it out anyway. But, you know, 200 feet 
off trail either way it could be growing there and you know rarely ever seen by a person except like going out to take a dump or something yeah but yeah um ginseng there's a couple other like herbs like that there's golden seal which is kind of like ginseng um, the cohoshes black cohosh and blue cohosh people gather the roots of that and uh, i don't honestly even know what people do with them i don't know like herbalism very much um that's like a whole another field of plant learning that i just don't have room in my head to study sure <laughs> So you mentioned berries before, and when I was on the PCT, like it took me a while to be comfortable trying to even pick like huckleberries. Like even when I was in the yeah. thick of the huckleberries, I was like, but what if, like what if this <laughs> yeah. just happens to be the one that's not a huckleberry? Yeah, let somebody else be the guinea pig. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so besides the fact that it looks like the berry that it's supposed to look like at a glance, <laughs> what are other things that someone should familiarize themselves with in terms of like, without a doubt, being able to identify a certain plant? Like what, like, let's say we, it does, I'm not saying like every plant is, but let's pick one plant, right? X plant doesn't need a name. What types of things, if I want to pick this plant or like eat this plant on trail, what types of things should I learn about it? Oh, what the fuck sorry, is that? Sorry, what the hell's sorry. wrong with you? <laughs> sorry. I was pulling up that. Uh, you can tell it's an Aspen, by the way. You can tell it's an Aspen because of the way it is. <laughs> no, yeah, play, yeah. That, play that quick. All right. I got to figure out how to turn it's the volume really down loud. so we don't make anyone's ears But bleed. you know, like the leaves, like the points, the bar, the, the stems. I don't know. Like, what, which kind of shit do you look for? <laughs> look at this. Um, this is an Aspen. Berry plants, there's you can tell that it's an Aspen trees and there's... Sorry, Zach was <laughs> Zach was playing audio over you. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. We'll do this later. <laughs> You'll have to excuse him. I was gonna say, there's, um, you know, berries are like meant to be eaten by animals. That's why the plants make them. But some things people can't eat. Um, luckily for humans, are, you know, things that are poisonous generally taste very, very bad. Um, so if you put a bear in your mouth and you you don't have to swallow it, but you could, if you're feeling adventurous, you could chew it up a little bit. And if you're like, oh, that's sweet and tastes like a blueberry, like it's probably okay. Um, if it tastes like stinking ass, then <laughs> you probably want to spit it out. My friend gave me a berry the other day here in Ohio that she said was, um, what did she say it was? Like a jujube or something? I, I don't know. It was some kind of like weird plant that she bought and she had me eat one and it tasted just completely poisonous. I was like, I don't, I think it was like a nightshade berry or something. I was like, I couldn't get the taste out of my mouth. So, if you eat things that taste super bad, they're probably bad for you. Are you okay um, with? Berries. Are you okay with putting like? Is the per a general human okay with putting shit like that in their mouth and not getting I, I dead? <laughs> I, I wouldn't do that if yeah. But I mean, if you're in like a big patch of things that kind of look like huckleberries, um, you're probably okay to or anything that looks like a raspberry. Pretty much they're all raspberries, blackberries. Things that look like that are generally edible. I'm not going to tell people to go out and just start popping random berries because you know poison oak makes berries, and if you put a poison oak berry in your mouth, you're going to be really messed up for a yeah, while. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like bad uh, advice. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if like you're you know around, you see other people like eating them. Um, every now and then, you get that one huckleberry that tastes really skunky and stinky. I don't know why. I've never been able to find out why. You'll have like a perfectly good, delicious, juicy looking huckleberry and you'll eat it and it just tastes fucking awful. So sometimes <laughs> you'll get ones like that and it doesn't mean you ate a poisonous berry. It, it might have just been one that like 
a bacteria or a fungus like started decaying or something like that. Um, but yeah, as far as like randomly tasting stuff, maybe don't, unless like you're pretty sure, or like you can ask somebody else who's hiking with you if they've ever eaten those. Um, yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite berry along the PCT? Yo, that's a good Probably the little strawberries. They're very, very small, but they taste so good. It, it takes a long time to pick a lot of them. Um, huckleberries are great. Um, they're always good. The blueberries are always good. The most disappointing berry, salmon berries. I was going to say that. Yeah. I had they're a bunch. so huge, and they look like bright orange or pink. They can be all kinds of – they can be yellow. And they look so good and juicy, and they just don't really taste like anything. It's just like eating – like wet wax <laughs> they're really disappointing yeah. most of the time there were a lot of those when we hiked the wonderland trail and yeah i don't know i wouldn't go as far to say as like i was sorely disappointed but i was pretty disappointed it wasn't yeah. it wasn't appetizing by any stretch there's very little sugar in them it seems like yeah they're just they're wet they're, they're not they won't hurt you you can eat as many as you want but they're they just they look so good and then they just aren't <laughs> Have you seen a salmonberry chance? Probably on trail, but I, I've I've heard the name. I'm just not eating random ass. Like <laughs> that's not that's not for me. Uh, yeah, that's a safe way to go about it. Yeah, that that was about the color of the ones that I was seeing, but huh. yeah, they they look better than they taste. I think Do they taste like salmon? Them. And they're huge, so they're they're really. Inviting. I think it's it's salmonberry because of the color, right? Yeah, yeah. They're often like a pinkish salmon, but they right. can be kind of red or they can be yellow or any shade in between and they're all okay yeah <laughs> on sorry i'm bulldozing questions no you're I, good you're the you're the plant person in the group i just so. asked a long-winded question about how to know what berries to eat yeah I'm good. that was a good that was a good question uh we're talking pct let's talk about cactuses cacti yeah what are your some of your standout cactus species hmm. the barrel cactus you only see that a couple times on the trail right at scissors crossing which is like mile 77 or something like that. Um, and, you know, it's going to be the biggest cactus you'll see the whole trail. A barrel, you know, maybe a foot across. I can get like maybe four feet tall. And then there's one other time you can see him really briefly <laughs> I think coming down from the back of San Jacinto. There's somewhere in that area where you run in that little like perfect habitat zone where it grows with the agave. It's the only places you'll see agave on the trail too. And they, they grow together as like a pair. Um, so I like them, the beaver tails, their flowers are beautiful. They're often blooming when people are going through, oh, that also reminds me, there's a rare, uh, subspecies of the beaver tail cactus that you will definitely see near Cajon Pass. So when you're hiking near Cajon Pass, that whole area on both sides of the trail, there's beaver tail cacti there, but they're really, really stubby. Like the pads are really short and clubbed. And they are covered in flowers, and they're just like the only place to grow in the world is like right in that kind of little area near Cajon Pass and like along the transverse range kind of foothills there. So that's a really cool one to keep an eye out for. And it's common, you'll see it there for sure. And it's usually blooming when people go through if it's been a decently moist year. Yeah, this is a really pretty photo here. Um, do you, you cross the jumping Toya on the PCT at all? I remember seeing an Anza Borrego, but I don't remember if that was the PCT. Yeah. I, I think that might be the teddy bear Toya. Do they also call it that? I'm not sure. I'm pretty bad with common names because 
I think jumping Choya might just refer to all Choya. Okay. Um, or it might be a specific one, but I'm not sure. But they get that name because they don't obviously jump, but like even just barely brushing against it, it just sticks right into your in your arm or your leg or wherever it hits you. The spines are so sharp. And you do see teddy bear Choya, I think, at Anza Borrego um, at Scissors Crossing. Wikipedia. Yeah, Wikipedia is telling me this is the cylindropetia. Cylindropuncha. Yeah, thank you. He's not a good reader. No. (laughs) Um, Do you have any plants that fall in line with, like, keeping – like, I liked plants that keep your hike fun by giving you something to look for that aren't difficult. Like, on the PCT, the one that I stuck with that I thought was, for me, the most fun – was if you find a Jeffrey pine, um, you yeah. know it's a Jeffrey pine amongst other ways because it smells like butterscotch. So anytime yeah. I'd see something that I thought was a Jeffrey pine, I'd go up and smell it, and it just like added some fun to the day. Are there other ones yeah. like that you know of? Yeah. Are you familiar with um, coyote mint? No. It's really, really common on the Pacific Crest Trail. Um, it's like a kind of a short – it's a mint. Um, it grows in the high Sierra, lower Sierra. It grows kind of everywhere in the mountains. It's got these little purple flowers. Sometimes you'll brush against it by accident, and then you'll just get this extremely strong minty smell. And it's probably the coyote mint. Um, so you can look for that one or get familiar with it just by like looking up pictures of it. And then when you're out on the trail, you can you know crush some leaves, smell it. It smells super super good. You can make a tea out of it. You can, I just kind of like picking off leaves and chewing on them, just get a nice little fresh minty taste. Ooh. Um, what else is there? There's a lot of things. I like smelling things. So I smell like pretty much every flower that I see. Um, most of them smell really good. Some of them smell really, really bad. Um, but you'll find out there was one that I smelled that it wasn't on one of the trails, but it was in the carrot family. It was called Pseudocymopterus. And I went and I smelled the flower because most of them smell like parsley, like a really nice smell. And it produces some sort of chemical that is like I went to smell it and it burned my like nose so powerfully, like I like choked. It's like the smelling salt or something where you just immediately like oh, oh and it like lingered, it, like stayed in my like nostrils for like a minute. What's that so, one called? You know, it was called pseudocymopterus. Now I think it might just be called Cymopterus lemonia, I think. And all you have to do is smell it for that reaction? I crushed the leaves oh, and okay. smelled it. I, uh, re- um, so- I was going to say, reason I asked, my, so my boyfriend's a hockey guy, um, and him and all of his friends are hockey guys, and they have, like, smelling salts, and what yeah. they'll do is they'll wait for, like, one of them to nap, and when they're <laughs> napping, they'll just put it under their nose, but that kind of seems like a fun, like, a little trail prank. Find these guys, crush them up. We should whip that out of Palooza. I would do, I mean, if we were back on the TCT and I had found some of this, I'd yeah. 100% stick oh, it yeah, under your nose. Sure. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> You could even do, you could be nice and do the mint under their nose and see if they wake up smart man. Or, or you, you could do, do roulette. Is it the oh, mint yeah, or is it the, yeah. That'd be interesting. There's a bunch of um, plants in the carrot family, the parsley family on the trail, um, mostly in the genus Lomatium or Tausia. Um, they just call them spring parsleys and they kind of look like parsley. And if you crush the leaves, they smell really, really good like parsley. Or I don't know if they're edible. Probably, probably, I wouldn't 
go around crushing up and smelling plants in that family or tasting plants in that family because some of them will kill you. Um, so don't, don't eat them, even if they smell good. Uh, usually the poisonous ones smell really bad. But I think smell is like a really underutilized sense out in nature because like a lot of plants smell really good. Go smell trees. Like um, not just Jeffrey pines smell like good. Like ponderosa pines smell good. They smell a little different. You can smell the white bark pines, or you know, you know, just go around smelling stuff. <laughs> Talking about pines, as you get further into Northern California, you start to like really enter different forests, um, and you get like a lot of like really cool like neoni lichens and things like that. Can you kind of walk us through the change that you see when you enter that area? Yeah. So once you start kind of you go up around Mount Shasta or, you know, south of Mount Shasta, and then you get into the Klamath Range, you start getting into a really, really different ecological area where they get a lot, a lot more rain in the wintertime. It's basically the Pacific Northwest, like the very northwestern part of California. Um, and then so you'll get a bunch of different tree species there that you don't get elsewhere. There's, um, there's a foxtail pine. You know, like the foxtail pine you see in the southern Sierra. They're like the really... I don't know how to describe it. They're like one of the only trees that grow really, really high up in flat areas, and really distinctive bark, and they're often gnarled. They're a species of bristlecone pine. They're really closely related to the bristlecone pines that are often Nevada and the White Mountains and stuff. But then there's an isolated disjunct subspecies that grows up in the Klamath. So that grows up in there. And then there's an endemic spruce, the Brewer spruce, that is only found in the Klamath Range, nowhere else in the entire world. And it's all over the PCT. So you definitely walk past them and you will see them. And they have these really nice, like, drooping branches. So they're pretty distinctive up there. And then you start getting weird, um, kind of like Alaskan or just Pacific Northwestern plants that, like, follow the coast all the way up to Alaska. Um, like the Western uh, Cedar, Thuya occidentalis, maybe. They're one of the biggest trees that you see, um, like, kind of near the Seattle River. When you're up in Washington, there you'll, there's one area, I don't remember exactly what it's called, but you're walking and there's, you know, like 10 foot wide trees everywhere. And it's a mix of Douglas fir and that uh, uh, Western red cedar. So you start getting a whole different set of plants. You're kind of leaving the California floristic province is what it's called, where like all the plant biodiversity is really abundant and you just kind of get Pacific Northwest once you hit the Klamath. Is it difficult for you to pull big miles being so interested in everything that surrounds you? Like what is your typical hiking day? Um, I still do pretty big miles usually. Um, it depends on how many plants there are. If there's like a lot of interesting things or if it's like you're walking through a burnt forest and it's like all just standing dead stuff, mm. then I'll just cruise it. Or mosquitoes were the main thing that sped me up in 2019. Because a lot of Oregon um, was just like, and Oregon's not extremely interesting between the volcanoes. It's kind of like flattish forest and there's often ponds full of, you know, mosquitoes. So I would go far those days and not take a lot of pictures of plants. But a normal day, like in Northern California, North, where you're like really trail fit, um, we're going like 30 to 35 miles a day. Um, and I, my little trail family would, you know, I would stop and take a photo and if they were near me, they'd just go around me and keep going. I was like, I'll catch up later. And I'd either like, if I wanted to talk to them or like tell them about what I just saw, I'd like rush up and quickly like meet them or I just meet them at camp, like, you know, 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later, however far behind I was. 
Um, so it, it definitely does cut into the miles, but not. I don't spend a ton of time like photographing the plants. You know, if there's a really cool plant, I might spend like 15 seconds like photographing it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, shout out to your Instagram because your Instagram is fantastic, and uh, it, just the diversity of plants that you've captured is like just eye candy, eye porn. On his eye naturalist, he's got 70,000 observations logged. So what is, <laughs> I want to come back and I want to learn more about what this eye naturalist is. I yeah. mean, maybe the the general listener is more aware than I am, but. Um, I would love to talk about eye naturalists. Yeah. J- just, <laughs> have to do it right now. just quickly, are you hiking with some fancy mirrorless or DSLR or is this all captured with a smartphone? Almost always just my iPhone. Um, I have taken... I have a Sony A6000 that I took on the CVT for a little bit. I, think I might have hiked the whole trail with the CVT. I think I did hike the whole trail. No, I had a um, Sony RX100, a little like point and shoot. It's kind of light, takes good photos. I did the lowest to highest with the Sony, the mirrorless. And then I've done parts of the other big trails until I'm like, this is a terrible idea. And then I just mail it home because I think that I'm going to want it. And I like, I'm like, it's not that heavy. But to get it, like you have to take it out of your pack. And then I had the telephoto lens in case there was like a bear or something cool I wanted to see far away. And, you know, by the time I take it out of like my pack and clip it on, like the animal's usually gone. So it just wasn't really practical for me to hike with it. Um, So I don't really do that anymore. I usually just take the phone. Mm. It's good enough. Yeah. In addition to just amazing photos that you've captured here, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly surprised that this is just a smartphone shout out to the smartphones uh you give really interesting information for all the plants too like really really cool informative write-ups so definitely uh anyone listening to this please follow sheriff woody uh, sheriff underscore woody underscore pct um you will not regret following this account very interesting if you know the first thing about hiking socks then you are already aware of our next sponsor Darn Tough is the most trusted sock in hiking and the number one hike sock in the USA. Family owned and made in Vermont, Darn Tough offers the most durable socks guaranteed. In fact, their warranty is famous with hikers because they're unconditionally guaranteed for life. Meaning, if your socks aren't the longest lasting socks you have ever owned, you can return them to Darn Tough for another pair for free. According to the Trek's most recent AT Hiker Survey, more than 75% of hikers reported using Darn Tough socks during their hikes. A successful hike starts with happy feet and nothing makes a hiker's feet smile quite like a snug pair of Darn Tough socks. Like most long distance backpackers, I've been a Darn Tough user and fan for longer than I can remember. Whether I'm hiking in the heat of the desert or through the tail end of shoulder season on the long trail, I've been rocking Darn Tough socks with happy blister free Darn Tough's Merino socks manage moisture, regulate temperature, are lightweight, and best of all, don't smell like a boiling dumpster even after many consecutive days of use. Backpacker Radio listeners can score a 10% discount plus free shipping by using code DTLOVE-BACKPACKERRADIO at checkout at darntuff.com. Again, that code is DTLOVE-BACKPACKERRADIO.com at darntuff.com to get 10% off plus free shipping. This deal is only good for a very limited time, so do not wait. Okay, let's talk about what is iNaturalist. So iNaturalist is like a community science uh, giant database. So every photo that you take on a smartphone these days is 
automatically geotagged unless you want to make it not do that, which you can easily do in the settings. But most people probably don't even know, like when you take a photo, there's GPS coordinates attached to that photo. Um, and so when you upload a photo to iNaturalist that was taken on an iPhone or an Android or something like that, it'll just immediately populate all the metadata. So it'll have the picture. Say you took a picture of Poodle Dog Bush. Um, it'll you know show your photo and you can put multiple photos into one observation if you want. And it'll have the time that the photo was taken. It'll have the date the photo was taken. It'll have the coordinates where it was taken. It'll say like, California, Lassen County, you know, and all the other data that's associated with that photo. And then it'll put it on a map so you can zoom in and look like exactly where you saw it on a map, like a satellite imagery or whatever you want to do. And then there's an AI that can identify hmm. roughly. It's good with really common stuff. So if you had your photo and you didn't know what it was, you would just click into like the plant name where you would type it in if you already knew what it was. And it'll automatically like use the AI to identify it if it can. And it usually can. Like it, it's really, really good. Um, you don't want to depend on it so much because um, it's just basing it on the most common observations or with like an astragalus, which is like the balloon milk vetch thing that I was talking about. There's 3,000 species in that genus. So it usually will just say astragalus. It won't tell you which one it is, but at least then you know it's an astragalus and then you can try and figure out which one it is. So it's really, really useful to, for trying to identify plants. And then also you can search for plants in a certain area, or not just plants, this is all living things. You know, you can look up bacteria, you can look up mm. viruses, you can look up mm. animals, birds, insects, fungus, anything. Um, and then it, like if you put up a lot of things, like I have a lot of, observations uploaded and then you can like look at a map of the united states and you can see every single point all over the place and it's pretty satisfying to like see where you went especially if you're taking photos all along the pct and then you upload them all you can see the trail in the points of the photos that you took which is pretty interesting hmm. and uh pretty much all phones from like 2016 until now i think have the geotagging so you could go back on your photos if you took them on the PCT, you know, five years ago or something like that, throw them on iNaturalist, all that data would still be there. Like you can see exact date and time that you took it and upload it and identify it. So you can do it even now, like after you're done hiking, or you can look up the plants in the areas before you go. It's just a really useful tool. I really like it. It's kind of addicting to, you know, try and see as many species as you can. Would you like have to update the areas and stuff if you're adding the photos later or does it pull that from like the background info of the photo? It's all on the info for the photo. So older photos or things taken on like an actual camera, like a DSLR is not generally going to be geotagged. It'll, it won't be able to tell you where it is and you won't really be able to use it on iNaturalist. You can put it on iNaturalist, but it won't pop up when people search for stuff because they don't know where it was taken. It could have been in like, you know, a botanical garden or that stuff like that. Does you don't you don't want to put stuff like that on that naturalist because people already know that it's in the botanical garden. It, this is more for like wild plants and animals. And then people get concerned because if you upload a rare species, you're thinking, okay, well everybody can just go to that rare species and dig it up. So for like ginseng, if someone uploads ginseng on iNaturalist, now ten thousand people will immediately see that you just uploaded ginseng. And theoretically, you could go and dig it up. But most plants that are sensitive like that, the iNaturalist webpage automatically obscures 
mm. the data for so they people can't do that mm. for rare plants you can't just go and like try and find rare plants because it's usually locked it'll have all the data it just won't tell you where it is yeah so using this as a tool while you're hiking to identify plants i would imagine you need cell service in order for it to work at that capacity uh, to use the AI, you do need cell service. I think there's like a, a JSON app from the same company. I think it's called, I can't remember what it's called. Actually, dang it. There's another app though that you can like download a certain area and then it can still use the AI to identify stuff. I feel really bad. I can't remember what it's called, but um, it, that'll work if you download it beforehand for an area. But you can still upload your thing that'll pop up. And then once you get into service, you can just hit upload and it'll go through and it'll, you know, upload them for you, but it won't do the automatic identifying suggestion. Mm. And I'm seeing on your account that other people will chime in giving their suggestions for what the plants might be. Is, is this yeah. because you're a power user and people know Sheriff Woody's got this awesome account? Or if I were to go on and upload three plants, am I going to get commentary from the community as well? You, yeah, you'll almost certainly have people identify what it is. It's kind of like a fun thing to do when, when like people are just chilling. So the fun thing with iNatural is there's a lot of like experts in a very specific thing. So, you know, like paintbrushes, like the pretty flowers that grow out west. There's a guy that specifically studies that genus and there's tons of them. There's hundreds of paintbrush species and he'll go through maybe like once a year and I'll see, I'll get all these notifications that he's going through and identifying all of the paintbrushes that I couldn't identify because he's an expert and he just knows all of them. And you can also tag people because if you're like, oh man, I'm sure Mark knows what this species is. You can just tag his, you know, username on there and then he'll chime in and be like, oh, it's this. It's like, sweet. I just got an expert opinion. Like (laughs) it was super easy. And most people are really chill. You know, it's not like, don't make me, and you know, identify plants for you for free. You know, <laughs> there's there's nothing like that. Like if you're on a naturalist, like you're happy to identify plants for other people. Yeah, like it's a fun thing to do. Yeah, this is a cool tool. I'm gonna have to start using this on my hikes. I had it downloaded and then I undownloaded it. I don't know. I can't remember why, but it sounds like it sounds fun. It sounds yeah. like Pokemon Go. Yeah, I was plants. literally thinking the same thing. <laughs> so I've told people this. It's just like Pokemon to me. It's like gotta catch them all like i'm trying to find as many plant species as i can i want to have like as many biodiverse plants and it's like your phone is like a pokedex these days and you just like take a photo and it's like freaking capturing a pikachu or something like that but instead it's like an astragalus this is so much more appealing to me than actual pokemon because it's real stuff this isn't just something that a a coder decided yeah go ahead pokemon is based on insect collecting Wow. So the creators of Pokemon were really into insects as kids. And like as I can't remember where they were in Japan, um, but their like city was being developed and like a lot of the lots and forests and stuff were being cut down. So the idea for Pokemon was to allow people to enjoy the thrill of insect pinning, but also like you can make them fight each other and stuff. Hmm. But yeah, it's all based on insect collecting. The whole Pokemon franchise is originally. Yeah, that's why there's a bug type like that's one of the pokemon types it's pretty random yeah i think like for me if i'm just walking like seeing a plant and being like i need to know what that is probably isn't going to be on the list of things my brain thinks however i love finishing items on a list so if i were to like go through a section of trail and it's like here's 
10 to 20 things that you could see, mark them off as you do. I'm going to be looking at every single plant. Yeah, like a bingo card. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's my alley Botany right bingo. There. We should make this app. You should do a PCT bot. Yeah, you can make a PCT botany bingo card, and you can have a photo of the plant, and then, you know, once you see it, just tap it off or whatever. Maybe an app version would be easier because it doesn't weigh anything. Yeah. Everybody's got a phone. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Uh, okay. In the interest of time, let's go to a different trail. Let's talk. Let's go to CDT. I don't think uh, chronologically that is next, but for the sake of doing triple crown trails first, um, yeah. so you did the CDT in 2017. Uh, yeah. Give us some of your standout, the, the plants that got you most excited during your CDT hike. CDT was really cool. Um, really enjoyed it. The Rocky mountain species were pretty different than anywhere else I'd ever been before. Um, lots and lots of alpine zones on the uh, CDT compared to the other trails where the AT has just a couple like large-ish alpine zones. Um, PCT, you got the Sierra and then, you know, Oregon and Washington. But the Rocky Mountains, like from New Mexico all the way to Montana, you're hitting alpine zones pretty frequently. So there's a lot of plants that are adapted to that, you know, cushion life shape i don't know what you call it like growth habit um because it's really windy and cold so plants can't grow up really big or they'll freeze or be blown away or chewed down by the mountain goats and stuff up there um there's a plant called claytonia alpina uh or megarizes sorry it's the alpine claytonia alpine spring beauty it's really nice kind of like a succulent um it's got these little wildflowers you'll see them everywhere um from Colorado, you know, northern New Mexico, Colorado, maybe into Wyoming. I don't know about Oregon or uh, Idaho and Montana, though. Um, what other cool things are there out there? There's uh, bristlecone pines. You'll see lots of bristlecone pines on the CDT. Um, it's not the same species that you see in the Great Basin. It's the Rocky Mountain bristlecone. And you'll see that, I think, in northern New Mexico until Colorado. Um, so that's a pretty cool one to see. It doesn't grow. It doesn't live as long as the ones in the Great Basin, but I mean, they still live like 2,000 years. So they live a long time. Um, what else is out there? I don't know. There's a lot of good cacti and stuff in um, southern New Mexico. Um, I saw a Gila monster in southern New Mexico, which I did not know were on the CDT at all. Um, and people that don't know what a Gila monster is, it's a large venomous lizard. Um, they're kind of like distantly related to Komodo dragons and stuff. Um, and they have a really venomous bite if they bite you. Um, it's not going to kill you, but you'd want to be in a hospital. Um, but that's the very, very far Eastern part of the range, right by Lordsburg. You have a tiny chance of running into them there. And the guy I was hiking with wasn't familiar with what it was at all. Like I had just met him like maybe like three days ago or something like that. And uh, he was like, oh man, like, I don't like you getting near that thing, dude. I, I don't know what that thing is. Like, it looks really dangerous. Like, please get away from it. And it was hissing <laughs> stuff. I was like taking photos. It's hissing at me. It's got a forked tongue, kind of like a, or just kind of like a fleshy tongue. Um, yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah, this thing looks menacing. And uh, <laughs> seeing one of these things is pretty rare, right? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty rare to see them. The Arizona Trail is really where you have the best chance. I saw three of them when I hiked it there in the spring, um, and that was really lucky. People were like, I've hiked, the, you know, I've never seen it in Arizona. Um, but that's your best chance if you really want to see one. It's like the Arizona Trail in the spring. Hmm. Okay, so power ranking of the Triple Crown Trails 
from the botanist perspective, how do you rank these trails? PCT, definitely number one all around. Really? And every Even with all the like diversity in the Southern Appalachians? Yeah. I, I love the deserts though. And like all the desert plants, the elevation ranges too. Uh, you know, the AT ranges only from like, you know, sea level-ish to like 6,700 or something like that. And then you get, you know, 400 feet to 14,000 or 13,000 if you're just staying at, you know, the actual trail. Um, so in these elevation swings, you get different plants, like every thousand feet you go up is like essentially a different slice of ecosystem that you go through. And, you know, all those sky island ones that you're going through in Southern California, up San Jacinto, down San Jacinto, um, the San Gorgonios or whatever the next range, Baden-Powell, all that stuff. You're going up and there's different plants in every single mountain range because they're so big and isolated from each other. Plants just evolve in a new species on each mountain. So you're always seeing different stuff versus the Appalachian Trail. It's kind of the same a lot of the time. Uh, there's a lot of species, but it's the same kind of groups of them um, until you start getting different weird stuff up north. Um, and the CDT is very similar botanically to the PCT. Just not, it doesn't have like the California climate or influence. It's more just like mountainous alpine stuff. Would you put the CDT above the AT? Oof. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Let's also talk about pine cones because I was blown away in like the northern Sierra section at the size of some of the pine cones. I think that's probably the thing I photographed the most was just me picking up pine cones, <laughs> putting it next to my head. Uh, they get to be massive. Do you have, yeah. any, do you have any fun pine cone facts? Yeah, yeah. So on the PCT, you're going to see the longest pine cone in the world and the heaviest pine cone in the world from two different species. In Southern California, you'll see the Coulter pine, which makes this giant, really heavy, woody, sharp, like really jagged, sharp spine cone. They weigh like 12 pounds or something like that. So if you get hit by one that's fallen 80 feet, like your head is just going to explode. Like, <laughs> I don't know if this ever happened, but I think I think you would die. I think it would kill you for sure. Yeah. Like, you square head. Um, <laughs> and that's the heaviest pine cone in the world. And by pine cone, that's in the genus Pinus. There's other conifers that have heavier cones, but, you know, for sticking botanically. Uh-huh. That's the heaviest pine cone. And then once you're in Northern California, especially once you start getting around like Chester, an old station, you run into the sugar pine, which have the really, really long pine cones. They grow like two feet long. They're pretty light. They're not heavy at all, really. Um, but they're really impressive. You'll see huge piles of them all over the ground. And uh, bears love them. So hmm. they'll climb up into the trees and like knock them down and stuff. And then they like rip all the seeds out. Because they've got really big, tasty pine nuts that you can eat. You can eat pretty much all pine cone, pine nuts if you can get them. Most of them are just too small to be worth it, but both of those species have really big nuts and they're both really tasty. I, so if this one hits you in the head, your head's not exploding per se. Um, so the sugar pine is also the world's tallest pine. So they grow over 300 feet tall, I think. It's either almost 300 feet tall or they grow more than 300 feet tall. I, anyway, it's a big ass, huge pine tree. Um, so these cones are you know, going probably terminal velocity when they hit. But when they're dry, they don't weigh that much. But when they're young, they're like green. They're in like a cylinder. They're like a freaking missile. So uh, squirrels really like to 
bite them and then they'll fall and then they'll go to the bottom of the tree and then they'll pick them apart and eat the developing seeds and stuff before they're ripe. So I was working out in that last scenario all year this year and you would hear these like huge thuds and you'd be like, what the hell is that? And then you'd look around and you'd see just like a perfect missile going straight down <laughs> these cones and they'll poke into the ground like several inches because they just they're going so fast and when they're wet and green like that they probably weigh like two pounds or three pounds or something like that so if you got hit in the top of the head by one of those you're probably done for as well or at least really unhappy yeah uh, i remember seeing a far side comic when i was a kid and it, the caption was uh the world according to birds and you just see people scattered across like a public area and each person has a bullseye on top of them <laughs> obviously the birds like, trying to shit open. on people yeah uh, I wonder if squirrels have that sort of same uh, mentality in terms of chewing off pine cones, trying to take people out. Yeah, they. It seems like they try and drop stuff on you. Like even if they're not like eating something, they'll they'll get annoyed and do that little Meh! make all these noises, yeah. and then they'll drop like little bits of whatever's around, like to scare you away. I think they do do that. I don't know if they're purposely trying to hit you with cones, though. Maybe payback. They get hunted, of course. Yeah, they got to fight the fight. I've I've got a whole series of weird questions. This is your territory. How weird are you going? Well, we have a this, we have one of these. Yeah, I knew that would come up. Yeah. Yeah. You, you go. want me to do it? Yeah. Okay. I was gonna do it a little differently. Okay, go for it. Do yours. Okay. Um, what are your top three favorite um, plants that you've seen on these trails? It's a two part question. Mm. That's part one. Okay. Uh, dang, that's hard. There's a lot. Oh, I don't know. Uh, there's so many. <laughs> I don't know if I honestly have an answer. It'll, it'll come to me in a, a bit. On the AT, I love the American chestnut just because of its story and it's weird. Um, and you definitely will see it. You just might not see a big one. Um, on the PCT, favorite plant. There was a really cool one. Uh, oh, there's the pygmy poppy. It can be a candida. It's this tiny poppy. It's in the poppy family. It grows like maybe an inch tall, maybe like a little more than an inch tall. And it's got white flowers and it's super rare. It's listed as rare in California. People survey for it and stuff. But it's just like if you took a white flowering poppy and then shrunk it down to like an inch tall by like an inch wide, that's what it is. So it's extremely easy to not see it. Um, but I, I kind of knew that it was in the general area when I was hiking. And so I was like crawling around, like on my hands and knees in areas where there was like a lot of like little annual wildflowers. And it would be speckled in among all these other tiny wildflowers kind of near like Walker Pass on the PCT. Hmm. That was what, definitely one of my favorite plants to see. Hmm. Okay. And the third? Let's try a CDT one. Um, Oh, dang. Maybe the Alpine uh, Spring Beauty, the Claytonia uh, Megariza. That's a really, really nice one. It's another one you'll definitely encounter if you hike the CPT. It's got these big, fleshy, glossy leaves. Um, it's really cool. It's got a very strange geographic range. It's in the Rocky Mountains, and then there's randomly in tiny little pockets in the High Sierra. And then it's on Mount Fielsen in Oregon. I think it's at Three Sisters. 
And then it's randomly way up in the Northwest territories of Canada, like extremely disjunct. Like it just got spread all over the place by birds or something over the since the ice age. I don't know. It's got a neat history, natural history. Nice. Part two. Oh yeah. What was your part two? Have you ever played fuck, Mary kill? <laughs> I have. Okay. So we're going to do that and we're going to do it with the pygmy poppy, the American chestnut and the Alpine spring beauty. <laughs> okay. Um, hmm. uh, dang, <laughs> I guess I'd fuck the spring beauty because it's really pretty and showy and it looks slippery. Um, and then, dang, I don't want to kill either of them. It's kind of fucked up if you kill the chestnut, given yeah. the, given the life it's led. I might, I might kill the chestnut to put it out of its misery, <laughs> and then and then marry the pygmy poppy. Put put all those hardworking people that are trying to get it back out of their misery. I mean, they can save some of them. I'm just gonna kill one individual and just put it out. It's, it's suffering. It's infected. Do you have a favorite tree? And I don't mean tree species, but like one oh. tree encounter. Like for example, I know the uh, the the tree was it an oak at Bly Gap has just a crazy branch configuration that I feel like every through hiker takes a picture of. Is there something like that that stands out to you? Be like, this would be the tree that I would go revisit. Uh, do you guys know of the Dover oak on the AT? Yeah, it's like a pretty big oak tree right next to um, the road. I don't know what road it is. Oh, that's the one I was thinking remember. of in my head. I didn't know that was what it okay. was called. Yeah, so on the AT, when I got there, I was going southbound, and uh, me and Buzz Lightyear, it was really hot and humid. It was probably like July or August or something when we were there, and we both had like terrible, terrible ass chafe, um, <laughs> and we had found in a hiker box like this it, like super extreme strength gold bond like cooling powder, and for some reason, we just decided like, all right, let's just get this over with and like powder our like, butts. Like, so we each like had one of them. And uh, they come in like a blue bottle. I don't even know if they make it anymore. It's it's got that like cooling sensation that is like too cool that it hurts, but we didn't know that. So we're like trying to like put it on our chafe under this oak, and it hurts so so badly. Like it just like set our asses on fire, and we're both just like screaming like underneath <laughs> the oak. It was like a fun bonding experience. <laughs> it was very memorable. I don't know if it's my favorite tree, but it's a very memorable tree. Very very. That's probably the most memorable individual tree that. I would say besides the one that he just mentioned, um, that's probably my second most standout tree on the AT because it's just hard to miss. But now I'm hoping that yeah. people go hike the AT like in 2024 after listening to this. Yeah, this is the And they start tree. to know this <laughs> yeah, as this is... Sheriff Woody's ass chafe tree. <laughs> I think that would be chafe. fun. <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah. yeah, we like put our tent right at the base of it. We were there in the middle of the night. Like we were really bad about night hiking. Um yeah. yeah, if you're hiking the AT and uh, you you hike by this tree, you will. Um, and you put it on Instagram, be sure to tag Woody here. Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, Hashtag Ashley. Yeah. Yes. I feel like I'm channeling Chance here. This is not an oddball question, but I think this would be an interesting one for me, certainly. So a selfish question. But what are your favorite indoor plants to have in your house? I have never had any. Really? <laughs> I'm really bad about indoor plants because I don't really live indoors very much. Or if That's I fair. do, it's in the winter time. That's fair. And uh, it just wouldn't be a good time. 
but I honestly I don't even really know that many. Mm. Um, we can skip it. Yeah, I, I could I could I, I could be I'll, equally weird with my questioning. Um, if you, this is another two parter. Um, I'm gonna do it for a flower. Well, three parter. I'm gonna do flower, tree, and insect. If okay. you were a flower slash tree slash insect, what would you be and why? If I could be any one of those? Yeah. Like if you were a flower, what flower would you be and why? Uh, that's a good question. Like a job interview Maybe question. A bris- Which Maybe one? a bristlecone pine. Just get to live a long time and watch stuff happen. <laughs> <laughs> But they're basically interacting with very few things and sitting up on the top of a mountain ridge, being able to see all around. Uh, yeah, and just watching things change over thousands of years would be kind of cool. Okay, I, I accept. And then tree? <laughs> oh, that was the tree. Okay, flower. Sorry. Um, I thought you were picking a pine cone as your flower. I thought that was kind of cute. Uh, <laughs> I was going to accept it. Okay. Um, let's see. Flower wise. I'm really bad with picking favorite things. Maybe um I don't know. Okay, well skip flower. <laughs> if you could be an insect, what insect would you be and why? Periodical cicada. Just because I like them. Wanna know what it's like to sit underground for seventeen years sucking on a root and then, you know, come out for six weeks of screaming and mating and and dying. <laughs> They're gonna be lowering Sheriff Woody maybe, into his grave and just be like, "Finally!" By, <laughs> yeah, maybe I get infected by that STD fungus that is like would it'd be like being on meth, you know? It'd be an interesting way to die. Yeah, like sex meth. <laughs> sex meth. Cicada sex, sex meth. And drug, <laughs> sex and drugs party. So, in addition to iNaturalist, are there any apps, tools, resources that you'd recommend for aspiring long distance backpackers that? whether it's a book or something that they should put onto their phone that can help them, um, you know, spark their curiosity for the things that they're seeing on trail? It's a good question. Um, for the trail itself, like uh, the gut hook apps, I like, you know, it makes life easy um, knowing where the water is and seeing updated water sources. It's a very, very practical thing uh, to have. Um, there are wildflower apps for every single state um, so you can just Google or whatever the app store, you know, whatever you download apps on. Um, if you just type in like wildflowers of California or wildflowers of Colorado or wildflowers of Virginia, there is an app for every single state that has like almost every single plant in that state. And it'll show you photos of it. It'll have a range map. It'll have little descriptions. It's not super in depth, um, but it's nice to have if you're just like scrolling through. It's it doesn't have any AI that's gonna identify stuff for you or anything like that. But it's just cool to like scroll and be like, oh, I really like this plant. I would like to see that. And then you can look it up on iNaturalist or just Google it and try and find out the area that it grows. So those are useful. And I I don't think they even have a name. It's just like wildflowers of California or something like that. Mm. Um, other apps, I find having Google Maps just the satellite layers, extremely useful because um, you can see recent things and be like, oh, is this area going to be burned? Like, what does it look like? Is it like a bunch of trees laying over the trail? You can actually see that just by looking on the satellite imagery around you, which you can download uh, the satellite layer on um, the gut hook or far out. Um, uh, Gaia is another app that's a GPS app. 
that is just a more general anywhere works and you can download offline maps you can download different layers um you can download a lot of different layers if you pay for it it's like maybe three 39 bucks a year or something like that i find it's super worth it because you can put on the precipitation layer of like how much it's going to rain in an area i don't think it's super accurate but you can see where a wildfire was you can see um old historic map overlays so you'd be like oh there used to be a building here i don't know why that would be useful for hiking but it's a useful app um all trails is useful for just general hiking um i don't think it would be good for through hike but if you just want to go on like a day hike somewhere um same thing it's got like all the different layers satellite topo things like that there's a lot of nice map apps that you can get mm -hmm. and then i think my last question pertaining specifically to projects that you've done is tell me about your botany road trip from 2020 or 2020-ish. Okay. Yeah. I kind of, in 2021, I think it was, I just didn't really do anything that year. I just saved up money from the year before um, and drove around all over the U.S. just looking for cool plants. I would just be like, oh, this rare plant grows here, this rare plant grows here. So I drove like all over um, the Western United States, went to every Western state, um, except Oklahoma it was the only state west of the Mississippi I didn't go to, I think, or maybe Minnesota or something too. Um, but it was really cool. I'd never been to the Dakotas before. I went up there. Turns out they're really, really cool hmm. for me anyway. Um, I mean, if you're going shopping or something like that, it's probably pretty boring. Um, then I went to the Southwest or Southeastern US, went to Florida. Uh, the Carolinas, Georgia, Alabama, just hunting weird plants there, meeting up with my friend Lily, who's a really good botanist in northern Florida. And she got to show me all kinds of cool plants, like carnivorous stuff. Like those Venus flytraps are a weed in parts of Florida. They just grow in like bogs and stuff. And hmm. like it's kind of a bad thing. Like there's they're really cool, but they're not supposed to be there. Also, a weird fun fact, uh Venus flytraps are endemic, only found naturally in two states, and it's um north carolina and south carolina huh. they seem like some tropical at least when i was young i thought it was like some tropical jungle plant but only place in the world is a tiny strip of like coastal bogs in the carolinas which i thought was very strange i've read that venus flytraps don't actually need flies to survive but they just eat them because they can is that true they eat um so they do need to eat insect matter like animals to survive because they don't the habitat that they live in is like a bog so like a lot of pretty much all carnivorous plants live in bogs or really really low nutrient soils so they grow in areas that are really wet that don't have a lot of um, available nitrogen and phosphorus and calcium and some other minerals that are like common in dry ground so they get those minerals from the dead bodies of insects so the venus flytrap will like capture a fly or whatever and it kills it, just like kind of smothers it. And then they sort of decay and it releases some like enzymes and stuff. And then it just absorbs them through the leaf. It'll take out the nitrogen and things like that. Nitrogen is the nutrient that plants need the most to grow, or they need it in larger amounts than most other nutrients and dead bodies are full of nitrogen. So they do, I mean, you could probably fertilize um, a Venus flytrap if you had it growing at home and it wouldn't need to be fed um but in nature they do need to eat oh. i guess i do have one more question 
due to climate change, are there specific plants that are at risk that hikers wouldn't be able to see along any of the trails? Um, you know, people should go out hiking in the next couple of years if they want to see something before it's too late. Yeah, that's kind of grim, but yeah, alpine stuff. Um, so a lot of plants, like pretty much any plant that grows at the very high altitudes of um, the mountain ranges. I'm trying to think of one. Let's take Death Valley. Um, it's not on the PCT or anything, but it's a really good example because at the very top of the Panamint Range in Death Valley, there's bristlecone pines uh, that grow just on like the very top portion of it. And they are pretty close to being just, you know, as a climate changes, like during the ice age, they would have grown much, much lower because it wasn't as hot. It was a little bit moister. But since then, you know, they've been retreating higher and higher and higher up the mountaintops and they only have a little bit of space left to grow. So even if it gets just a little bit warmer, it's going to get too hot for them to live and they'll just be lifted into oblivion in the Panamint Range, at least. They'll be okay in the White Mountains for a good while. Hmm. But um, all the little alpine plants that only grow at the highest peaks of the, or the uh, PCT or even in Appalachian Mountains, like if it gets warmer over there, those little alpine zones will just end up getting grown over by more common lower elevation plants. Um, I don't know how imminent, like it's probably not going to be like 10 years. You're not going to be able to see them anymore. Um, but in general, all vegetation out West is climbing the elevational gradient to get to cooler areas right now. Even like you can see them trying to, they're not trying to get away. They don't know that they're escaping, but plants are now able to grow at higher elevations than they would have been able to and are not able to grow at lower elevations than they typically would have been able to. Awesome. Well, we're already over the state of time that we told you, so thank you for being generous with your time. Please sure. let people know what sort of projects or anything that you're up to, uh, really anywhere listeners of Backpacker Radio should go to keep up with you. Sure. Um, yeah, Instagram, I'm very active on there. Um, I, I kind of have the same screen name everywhere. It's just Sheriff underscore Woody underscore PCT. It's the same for iNaturalist. If you want to look at my observations there, you can see my whole PCT hike like in the observations. Or if you want to like look for plants there, you can just uh, filter on my account by 2019 California. And you'll see everywhere that I went there. And so you can get an idea of what grows where and if you want to make a little bingo card, you can be like, okay, well, the snow plant can easily be seen right here, you know, and you can mark it off, things like that. Um, I have Facebook too, but I don't really, I just copy and paste the same stuff that's on Instagram is there. And I'm just Matt Berger on there. Cool. Well, yeah. Sheriff, this has been fascinating. Everything that we hoped it would be and more. So thank you very much for your time and joining us here on awesome. Backpacker Radio. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Whether it's a car camping trip, a bout of trail magic, or the summer road trip, a quality cooler and drinkware is essential. That's why we're thrilled to introduce our next sponsor, Arctic Outdoors. Arctic Outdoors makes products engineered for two things, performance and durability. And unlike other coolers on the market, Arctic's high-quality coolers and tumblers won't cost you an arm and a leg. Arctic's 52-quart ultralight hard cooler made the trip from Backpacker Radio's headquarters in Golden, Colorado to Trailways in Damascus, Virginia, keeping our spindrifts, root beers, and blue ribbons perfectly chilled. As the name would imply, the ultralight cooler is 30% lighter compared to other premium hard-sided coolers, which means you can be the group's beverage hero without developing a hernia in the process. 
and compromising on weight doesn't mean you're compromising on insulation. With up to three inches of closed cell foam insulation, your ice will remain as ice four days. For more portable adventures, Arctic Outdoors soft pack coolers are the ticket. These are lightweight, durable, and ready to travel with you, keeping your drinks cold for up to 24 hours while avoiding the mess thanks to two inches of closed cell foam and puncture and tear resistant liner. Lastly, Arctic's drinkware keeps your blue ribbons cold or your morning coffee hot for the long haul, utilizing double wall vacuum insulation. The BPR team rocked Arctic tumblers throughout the muggy afternoons of Southern Appalachia, enjoying refreshingly cold beverages along the way. Head to arcticoutdoors.com to get your premium coolers and insulated drinkware at a fraction of the price of the competition today. To the Trek propaganda portion of today's show, uh, Rachel gave me a couple of good options, but actually I'm going to zag and go with shout out to Kelly Floro, uh, former managing editor, soon to be current managing editor, who uh, took a leave of absence to go gallivant through Europe. She's now uploading her daily blog from her Pyrenean hot route hike. I'm sure I said that incorrectly. I always do. Uh, but Kelly obviously is an amazing writer. Not only is she skilled in the craft of writing, but she's also very funny and personable. Um, and I've had a ton of fun reading her updates thus far. I got some photos while she was out there, but to get a little bit more depth on it has been very interesting. And if you want to learn anything about this trail or you just want to be entertained by an international trek, honestly, I can't recommend this one enough. So uh, please do check it out. And shortly after you're hearing this episode, Kelly will be back in the saddle. So we're going to have to find something to do with Owen because got too much talent here in the track. I don't know what to do with everyone. Yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough position for you to be in. Yes, it is. Okay, segments, more segments. Let's go to today's question of the day. This is another chance inspired. Yeah, this was this was more exciting in the moment when I was clutching the Sunny D, but- Was this a hangover purchase? No, it was just like I needed to meet a order minimum and I saw it. I don't uh, even think it was that. I think I just saw it and I was like, I want this. But it's what's the most surprising impulse buy you've made while grocery shopping recently? For me, I got a Sunny D the other day because I remember how like artificially good it tasted as a kid. Uh, and it was just as fantastic. And I and I have now since gotten it two more times, and not just like a Sunny D, like a, like one of the gallons, and I walk around holding it like a, I don't know what you would describe me as, but picture me doing that. Yeah, got to meet your hydration threshold for the day. Yeah, um, I think there's water in it. This one was a Costco purchase, which can always be a roll of the dice because the quantities that you get there are outrageous; they're too much. But uh, I just on a whim bought something called Kinder's dipping sauce the chicken sauce hmm. it's, it's some sort of mayo based sauce i didn't actually look at the ingredients but i'm fucking addicted to it i put on everything it's especially K good on kinders 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 k-i-n-d-e-r kind of sauce is it uh it's called kinders dipping sauce the chicken sauce i think it's meant to be used as a, a way to make chicken more interesting probably like fried chicken sandwiches mm -hmm. but i've been using them on egg sandwiches on the weekend when i deviate a little bit more from my diet uh, it, it, honestly, everything, anything that you could put mayo on, like I'm sure it'd be good on burgers, but yeah, uh, I've never been happier. Um, probably an overstatement. It was a 
quality impulse buy and i have since bought more can you bring it next time we do pizza night yeah totally because that that's my only long complaint about pizza night is i'm a wet food person and i need to dip a pizza in something and that sounds like just the thing to celebrate the arrival of atomic cowboy we should start getting zaz more regularly fine yeah um twist my arm i also want to give it an honorable shout out to i went to trader joe's for the first time in a while recently there's no bad impulse by trader joe's no there's no risk there everything is good but i forgot how cheap the wine is yeah like you know it's cheap there but i forgot how cheap and good it is yeah and the people that work in the liquor store are always awesome. Like yeah. They know everything. Mm-hmm. You can say, like, I like this. I'm cooking this. And they'll give you an awesome recommendation for, like, a bottle of wine that'll be less than 20 bucks. Yeah. So I've rekindled my love of Sunny D and Trader Joe's recently. Yeah. I. That's my biggest regret in life is not living closer to a Trader Joe's. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's go to another Chance-inspired segment. We're going to our Triple Crown. I'll let you introduce this. A Triple Crown of Midlife Crisis Hobbies. Everyone starts to get them at some point, and then you start to put together the dots, and you realize, oh, I am having a midlife crisis. The one that you gave as your example. That's my first one. Don't you dare. Yeah, Bird no. watching. <laughs> I just wanted to say that my 43-year-old sister is now like deep in the rabbit hole of bird watching. It's, I mean, it's it's not like an original thought of mine. Yeah. It is me Probably none everywhere, of these will be. But I, you see people talk about like, oh, you know, you're getting old when you start liking bird watching, but then you like you see people actually like it's true people do that yeah they start to like birds it's the perfect segue from our interview with matt because it's it is like the in real life pokemon yeah like collecting things that are um of this earth and birds are so cool is it the, are they yeah birds are awesome especially is it the males that are the typically the brighter of the two See, this is how we know you're closer than I am. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know I don't, this stuff yet. I'm too dumb to be speaking in, on any sort of authority on this, but I think yet. that's generally true. Right. I'll be there soon for See sure. See us year 11 of Backpacker Radio. <laughs> yeah. Zach's going to be a bird connoisseur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm fortunate that Jenna is good at birds, so anytime we have something like out on our deck, she can tell me instantly what it is, and I'll forget instantly too. But yeah, birds are tight. Yeah, that's my first one, bird watching. Yeah. Probably not Check a on, good. If you see someone, if you see someone you know is starting to approach liking birds, for me this appeared um, in me wanting to get a bird feeder for the backyard, and I caught myself and I said, "What am I doing?" Yeah. And I haven't done well. It's also approaching winter, so I haven't done it yet. But that is the stepping stone, I think, is you start to get bird feeders, and then you start to actually look at the birds, and then you start to watch for the birds. Yeah. We went to Costa Rica a few years ago for my mom's 70th birthday, and the bird watching out there was next level. Everything was impossibly cool. Uh, My first one, this is not something I'll be partaking in myself, but I think the classic midlife crisis is getting into motorcycles. Oh, that's a good one. That wasn't on my list. Yeah. I think because... You start to get to that point where like you need a little bit of a thrill in your life. Like you can see, or at least you're getting anxiety about reaching the finish line, that you need some sort of adrenaline push, something that's not too physical. Like you can be, you don't have to be in good shape to ride a Harley. Um, but yeah, I, there's people in my life that are into that. And I actually don't know if the interest sparked at the appropriate midlife stage, but I imagine it did. I was going to say that I feel like the motorcycle riding, like the appearance of it as a hobby, is the person who still wants to get the adrenaline that they could have when they were like young, younger and more limber, but like with an activity that you could sit down during. Yeah. And specifically, I would say the motorcycles that have like the really like wide 
like comfy right. seats. Like there's not there's not a dirt bike. This is not a Vespa. This is like a yeah. Like not I could sit on this seat for hours. Yeah. Type of motorcycle. Yeah. Yeah, that will not be something I do. I'm too risk averse for that, and I'm not. My balance isn't good enough. I crashed a scooter in Greece. <laughs> that didn't go. For, that didn't go well. Uh, so I probably won't be getting into motorcycles. But it's a good one. My next one is. I see this one popping up more. Maybe this just parallels my interest, but this is probably especially true for guys. Maybe women are into this too. But uh, taking exogenous hormones, specifically testosterone. Oh. Yeah. That so wasn't on my list either. This is, I mean, for a variety of reasons. I, I imagine people do it for libido, but uh, I, as I get older, I don't feel like I'm recovering from my workouts as well. So I could understand the draw to take testosterone exogenously and still be able to work out like you're young or maybe have better workouts than you've ever had. And you just see, I see so many 50, 60 year old guys at the gym who are ripped and I suspect there's something else happening in their system. And by the way, no judgment to them. Do whatever you want to do that it's your life. I, I, I think there's good reasons to do it. But uh, yeah, I see it popping up more in my circles. Hmm. Okay, neat. I'm going to go with like a broader category. It's got, it's an umbrella. There's a lot underneath it. But small levels of like homesteading. Like you aren't turning into like a farmer or like mm -hmm. someone who's like doing agriculture, but you might be dabbling in a garden. You might be getting some ducks. You might, you know, start making bread. Um, all those little things that are like not full-fledged, I am a different person, you know, but also I'm taking my life that I currently have and going back to my roots a little. I think that's a sign. Yeah. I, I think that uh, correlates very well with having kids, your time spent at home. I, I don't leave the house other than to do podcasts or like once every other week I get two hours. Uh, so yeah, building a more uh, appealing setup at your house and just having hobbies and things to do makes perfect sense. Yeah. And then my third one, I had a lot listed, so I'm going to have to... Okay. This one is similar but less naturey, and it's caring more about things that I, I think it how do I describe it? I think it kind of bounces off what you're saying about you don't leave the house as much anymore. Once you stop leaving the house as much, you start to care about like what things look like a little mm. more, I think. So like table settings. I joined a Facebook sure. I joined a Facebook group the other day for table settings. Why? I don't know. <laughs> what, but it's what's the all... name of the group? <laughs> I can look it up. Uh, I'll look it up while you do your third. But it's all these people posting like their table settings. Like I found this type of glassware at a thrift store. I can't believe it. It's a so-and-so, so-and-so. Mm. And it's like, ooh. Or like they talk about like their silver and like all this stuff. Or they'll they'll post five photos and it's like a table setting for like a dinner they're having for let's say Thanksgiving if we're going with a mainstream mm -hmm. one and it's got uh, you know one's got a green napkin laid over it one's got an orange and it which one looks best with the plates and everyone's commenting like what they think the best table setting is I think shit like that where you really care about things in your house that you never normally would have is a sign of 
getting older and not leaving the house as much and maybe trying to find joy in other places. Sure. Yeah. This is uh, an argument Jenna and I have because I, I hate spending money and that sort of thing. And Jenna loves spending money on that. It's, she usually goes to home goods, which is pretty cheap to my understanding. But yeah, like uh, we've, we've fought over throw pillows on multiple occasions. Fighting is a strong term, but um, marital disagreements, I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. My last one, and this is kind of a natural evolution from through hiking, and then some people go into van life. I think once you get to midlife or maybe even like closer to retirement age, so maybe I'm bending here a little bit, is getting into RVing culture. Oh, yeah. Obviously, you got to have uh, a pretty penny to make this happen. Even the old, smaller RVs are from what I can tell, outrageously expensive. So I'm a ways away from doing this myself. But the appeal makes perfect sense. Every time I, there's an RV park right off of uh, Clear Creek here in Golden. And I do that walk almost every day of the week or that I'm here. And I always get like this feeling of envy or excitement. It's that feeling that you get, like you know that this is going to be a part of your future at some point. So I can totally sell, see myself going down this road at some point. But, but do you think that it's maybe less midlife crisis and maybe more empty nester? Like, I think I would put RV in the empty nester I category. do see. I do see a lot of, at least at this park in uh, off Clear Creek, I do see young kids out there. So huh. I think this is something, like, people, when kids are on uh, summer break, they'll go off and just explore the, the country that way. Um, probably maybe a lot of empty nesting and retirement because it is expensive. But I think that there's a component of it that's midlife crisis as well. Okay. If you've got the money for it, then yeah. Easily. I found the group for you. It's called Beautiful Table Settings. Beautiful Table Settings. <laughs> How big is this group? Uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of people in it. Damn. It is. <laughs> 200,000 people. Yeah. Holy shit. All talking about table settings. There you go. Sounds like a boring NPR segment. I don't even own a table. <laughs> <laughs> I have a coffee table. We're still using the hand-me-down from my mom. Thanks, yep. mom. Back to national pay your parents back day. Uh, any other honorable mentions? Oh, I mean, I would say I think anything like creative and crafty. Like once you start to have time for these hobbies. I have woodworking on my list. Woodworking, candle making. Mm. I would say crocheting and knitting, although I've been doing that since like I think I was five. Pickling. Uh, right, pickling. Like any um, canning. Freeze drying. Yeah, any of these things that, and you'll notice all of these are kind of do it at home activities. Yeah. So it goes into the we're still at home yeah. type stuff. But I think the midlife crisis hobbies have been like catapulted with covid because you took a lot of people that would not maybe have been at crisis mode yet sure and put them inside for a long time yeah. and then they started to have to look for fun and they found all these midlife crisis hobbies and they were like these actually don't suck yeah i also think there's a huge cohort of people that picked up things during covid that just dropped them immediately like there's apparently a shit ton of dogs that got adopted yeah that sucks yeah I I think well, that's because they went back to work and they couldn't like take the dog out and you know, just... and they just resumed their lives and realized they didn't have the yeah, it's bandwidth. Gonna get me angry. Yeah. Um, but like also, I would say like stamp collecting, uh, like coin collecting. I used to be big getting... into collecting pennies when I was a kid. Getting really into the Civil War. Sure. I yeah. think a sign of the midlife crisis yeah. is like. A, looking into your ancestry, and B, forming like connections and like loves of affinities towards certain things like the civil war yeah super super strong because your great uncle 
Harry, you know, was out there right. when you never even met him. And it's like, he didn't even know you. Like, yeah. why is this such a big part of your life? Yeah. Trying um, to understand your roots before you perish. It makes yeah. sense. Yeah. My only other one on here is plastic surgery. Oh, yeah. I think this is more just like a denial of getting old. Kind of in line with uh, PDs, but yeah, just resisting the sweet aging of time. What about veneers? Yeah, sure. Veneers are a midlife crisis thing, I think. Yeah, definitely. Cool. cool. <laughs> uh, we can skip all these. Let's go to the mailbag. Okay. I couldn't tell. Oh, wait, hold on. I couldn't tell you. Okay. Uh, oh, this is going to be a good plug for pooping in the woods. If you still haven't submitted your poop story, please do. The link is in our show notes and our Instagram bio. We want your poop stories so we can make the best book ever. Yes. I am a longtime listener of the podcast and also enjoy a good poop story. I have one that you may find funny. I was on a trip up Mount Baker. We had been hiking since 1 or 2 a.m. so that we could summit Baker and make it down safely by the afternoon. Love those alpine starts. Being on the glacier, we were all roped in and were on our final approach to the summit. On the side of the mountain, the call of nature came on strong. Being on a glacier, you need to use a wag bag to carry your poop out. No digging cat holes on a glacier. I told my guide that I really had to go. So he announced to our team of eight, okay guys, Maria has to wag. That's guide speak for poop. Everyone turn around while she takes care of business. So right there, I pulled out my wag bag, dropped my drawers and pooped. I was glad to dump my load, but trying really hard not to fart and make too many loud sounds <laughs> that can accompany the act of pooping. After that, I pulled up my drawers and summited Baker. This hey, I want to pause. If you were pooping in the middle of a group, they're not looking, but you wanted to drown out the sound of you defecating, what would you do? Um, I actually have a story for this. I'll finish the mailbag okay. first. <laughs> I told my guide that I really had to go. Wait, I already read that paragraph. This is a very rough draft of my story, and I can organize it better and give more details to make it complete. Please do. But I just wanted to give you the rough story idea to see if you would be interested in putting your it in your poop story book. A little more about me. I am a longtime backpacker, and I'm currently section hiking the AT. I usually get out once a month somewhere. I also have my own YouTube channel, Backpacking Chronicles. Thank you for considering my story, and I absolutely love your show, Maria Trail Name, Hill Tackler. Yeah. Nice plug love that. YouTube channel. Well done. We will always read those. Okay. So I actually did have to poop. I think I, I don't know if I've told this. I had to poop in front of the guy I was hooking up with on the PCT, and he, d he didn't know. So I woke up, and we were in an area where it was not primed for pooping. It was river on one side. It was steep cliffs on the other. We had found like the perfect distance from both to set up our camp. And that was literally it. Mm. And trail, you know, like everything is just not opportune. Yeah. And I woke up in the morning with like the worst case of Bubble need guts. to go now. Yeah. Had nowhere to go except for like literally right next to where we were. It was the only spot that was like safe and LNT and fine. And so he was rolled over facing the other way. We were cowboy camping like. So we weren't in a tent. He was facing the other way. And then the other three guys were on the other side of him, like a little ways further. Not much. And I had to quietly like crouch and take a shit and hope that he wouldn't roll over <laughs> and none of them would wake up. The sun had risen. So anyone was going to wake up at any second yeah. there. Um, thankfully, it was quiet. And so you didn't try to disguise the sound? I, it, there, there wasn't much. I guess you had the river on one side, so that's helpful. Right. But it was also a distance away. But it was just like the idea of like if you stir at all, you're going to be waking up to me with my pants down next to you, just yeah. like making eye contact. Because yeah. I was watching him to make sure he couldn't, like he wasn't waking up. 
And that would have been a very strange, yeah. very strange good morning. That is a good story. But back to the original question, you're in a group of people, in a circle of people, they're all turned the other way, and you have to disguise the sound of poop leaving your body. What are you doing? I'd probably be the asshole that starts playing music on my phone speaker. Okay. Probably pick a good poop song. At the moment of exit, I think I would go, mm, Barbara Streisand! And they'd be like, be why? Worse? No, they'd be like, why is he saying you... Barbara Streisand? But you wouldn't hear the slop. You or maybe you would. they'd hear both, and they'd be like, this guy is <laughs> like You're having an episode while shitting. <laughs> yeah, but you got to do it. You can't not do it. Do it next time we're on a road trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah I will. I'll, I'll give you feedback on how I, I react. Five star, uh, if you want to have your mail read on this show, send us a note at podcast at the trek.co or go to uh, backpackradio.com and there's a link at the bottom. Uh, this is from Chrissy005. This is our five-star review. Never let this podcast end. Where do I start? I first heard of VPR almost two years ago when the Ice Age Trail said they were coming to Wisconsin in 2021. I was deep in morning sickness, my first trimester. I don't know how that goes, or at least as the husband component. So I did not do the Mammoth Hike Challenge, must let, much less leave my bed. But listening to the banter of Chaunce and Zach brought up my mood, plus listening to Zach talk about dadhood as I entered into motherhood, helped me relate as a parent of a young one. With a now almost 15-month-old, congratulations, the hikes are short, but I hope to finish section hiking the Ice Age Trail someday and live vicariously through this show. My favorite guest by far is Weezer. Her, her emotional first interview to the AZT hike with the most romantic trail story. It was better than reading a romance novel. Please keep her coming back. I had to follow her on Insta immediately to see if the romance continued as not much more romance for me as my husband and I are exhausted chasing our wild little girl. I'm starting from the beginning and I'm still a year behind on, ep on episodes because my days are filled with diaper changes and watching my baby explore. But my commute flies by with BPR. P.S. My husband, brother-in-law, and I have several poop stories, embarrassingly, on day hikes. So I love that there is a podcast where that topic is frequently brought up. It keeps me laughing. Thank you so much for that review, Chrissy. Um, and if you want to have your poop story featured, again, we're putting together a book of the most embarrassing and hilarious poop stories. So please hit us up. Uh, and if you want to have your review read on this show, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us any number of stars just not one, two, three, or four. Sticker code. Cicada sex math. Nothing more to say about it. Uh, big thank you to our Chuck Norris Award winners on Patreon. That is Alex and Misty. With Should I get the updated list? Because there was a couple names that were new, right? I, I did mention to Rachel um, asking if it was updated. I, I'm I, seeing I the new like names. She, I think we're good. Yeah, I feel like she did. Okay. Alex and Misty with Navigators Crafting, Andrew, Austin McDaniel, Austin Ford, Brad and Blair from 13 Adventures, Brent Stenberg, Brian Alsop, Fables. Christopher Marshburn, Coach from Marion Outdoors, Dane, Ish, Derek Cook, Eric Casper, The Friendly Ghost, Eric Hoffman, Greg McDaniel, I Iron Hike Endurance Productions, Liz right. Seeger, Matt Sukup, Mike Poizel, Patrick Ciancialo, Sawyer Products, Spam, Timothy Hahn, Solo, and Tracy Trigger. Thanks. You can follow us on social at Backpacker Radio on Instagram and TikTok at Backpacker Pod on X, Facebook.com slash Backpacker Radio. You can follow Chance. You can find me on Instagram at Juliana underscore Chauncey, and you can get my book Hiking from Home, a long distance hiking guide for family and friends on Amazon. It is hike prep season, so get, check out Chance's book. Check out my books, Appalachian Trials and Pacific Crest Trials. We'll be grateful for a review for 
all of our books. Mm -hmm. uh, subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. We mentioned YouTube at the top of the show. Don't forget to subscribe and definitely check out this episode on YouTube. What's up, YouTube? Hi, Internet. You guys look good. And oh, these are questions that you're going to oh, ask. Oh, yeah. I hide sometimes my notes at the bottom. Good, good. Uh, yeah, that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening and happy hiking. Bye. Hey, guys. What do you want, Charlie? We're busy. I want to apologize about um, snapping earlier today with words at you guys and then Came here to make an apology, apology words. What are you talking about? I, I don't know. I don't remember. Okay, thank you. Well, hang on. Hang on a second. I got you guys a flower arrangement for you. Great. But Thanks. You can't give just have it. There's a plan. I have to come in and give it to you and put it down. All right, fine. Come in, put him down, and then go. Okay, and I'm in. He's in. Okay. Uh, put the vase close to them so we can see them. Right. Okay, and good. And where are you guys spending the most of your time? It's a very small apartment. We're all over the place. Just put them anywhere. And I'll put them down right here, then. No. No good. Move them. Can't put them here, though. Where can I put them? Dude, any... Put them in the trash for all we care. Too good.